Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Slime Time SideQuest, an official Dragon's Den podcast. This is Platyam3. And this is Yangus the Legendary Bandit. Uh, if you listened to our first side quest, you heard us talk about a six-pack of Final Fantasy games and reminisce about our experiences with them. Uh, for episode number two, though, we'd figured we had to go much bigger. We sure did. We wanted to make episode two twice as big, so we figured we'd do twice as many games. I mean, that just makes sense. But of course, we didn't want to make this a four-hour podcast or something crazy like that. So we decided to do around 12 games from some of the smaller scale consoles of yesteryear. And so with that, we are going to be talking about a dozen RPGs from two of Nintendo's handhelds, the Game Boy Color or GBC and the Game Boy Advance or GBA. Yeah, and with this many games to discuss, we figured we needed a bunch of people to talk about them again. So rejoining us tonight are all former Slime Time Prime and SideQuest guests. We have Aus Nerevar, Brurian, Brother Jaybird, and Pendy. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. It's great to be back. Always good to be here. Yeah. Q fanfare. Do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With our slew of guests to join us in on fun, let's grab some fresh AA batteries, pop them into our Game Boys and Game Boy Advances, and start the conversation. Well, you could just go buy yourself a new analog pocket for $200 and play all those games and more. <laughs> Nope, sold out already. I use yeah. Raspberry Pi. <laughs> exactly. I've got my modded Vita. <laughs> we've all got our uh, we've all got our other stuff, but that that does look like a neat little device, but definitely not something I need to drop two hundred dollars on. <laughs> Alrighty, so. Uh, let's go ahead. We will start with, since we are uh, primarily a Dragon Quest podcast, Pendy, you wanted to start us off talking about a Dragon Quest game or games for the Game Boy Color. That's true. Uh, the game that I'm going to be talking about is a two-for-one, uh, Dragon Quest One and Two for the Game Boy Color. So back in the day when uh, there was the Game Boy Color, the primary reason that I bought it was basically for Dragon Quest games. Uh, Dragon Quest 1 and 2 for the Game Boy Color uh, came out in Japan, uh, 23 September 1999, but then it was also released in North America 27 September in 2000. It was uh, released under the short-lived Enix of America before uh, they uh, uh, dissolved after the 2003 merger with uh, Square, which they are now Square Enix. It was kind of sad. Um, I actually knew some of those guys. I met them when I went to um, E3 back in 2002. Uh, unfortunately, during the merger, when that happened, uh, the Enix of America side, they all got canned and everything was given to Square USA at the time. Um, a nice thing about the game was that it came with a nice little uh, poster. I don't know if you guys uh, remember that. Uh, one side was original uh, Toriyama box art for the uh, Famicom games, and the other side was uh, world maps for both of the games. Do you guys uh, remember getting the maps for those? I didn't. I I did kind of what you did. I got a Game Boy Color probably in like 2001, 2002, a little bit after this one came out. Um, and I picked this up for like $10 used at the local game store. Yeah, I got mine used for like um, 20 bucks off Amazon back in like early 2011 or so. So it didn't come with the box or with the posters or anything. So that's cool, though, that they did include a poster with the original uh, box art on one side, though. That's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I don't have the map, but I piecemealed together a, I guess, complete in box, but not complete in box version of it uh, a few years back because it was cheaper to do that than to buy the whole thing off somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to get one of those one day for, just for the shelf, but I've just got the cartridge as well. Yeah, the poster poster was, was nice. Um, yeah, seeing the original box art 
the Toriyama box art uh, for both games. That was cool that they added that to it. And uh, both games, just like the Super Famicom remakes before them, are uh, in quotation marks rebalanced, which translates to they were much easier than <laughs> the originals. Um, it was much easier to get gold and experience, for for example. Um, an experienced player really won't really have to grind that much uh, in either game, especially compared to the originals. Also, each game has a world map button that has the glowing spots that indicate uh, you know, where all the castle, town, cave, towers, or shrines are, so you don't really have to figure out uh, too, too much like how to get to some place or the other. Uh, one thing I do have to point out, though, if you remember the, the box art, the North American box art, was the horrible, horrible CGI box art. Uh, I would say <laughs> nightmare-inducing. Do you guys remember that, that box art that they had for, uh, for that game? Oh, yeah, that was that was really interesting how they chose how to do that. I remember yeah. it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say compared to Dragon Warrior 3's box art, it's like, why did you do that? I think even they even did the same thing with the Dragon quest uh or dragon warrior monsters for yes. the game boy color they they did that's what i was gonna say it when i i remember as a kid like seeing the advertisements for uh dragon warrior one and two uh, in nintendo power and i remember seeing that box art because they had like the, a big full-scale page of it so you could see all that lovely 3d art and all its glory <laughs> and i always remember seeing that and just thinking you know that kind of looks like the box art from uh dragon uh, warrior monsters that i played but <laughs> i had to laugh then that they they must have realized that the box art didn't look quite that great for those two because like like you said brewery and they changed it to uh the toriyama art for dragon warrior 3 and they did the same thing with uh dragon uh, warrior monsters 2 uh, both versions because both of those also had the um toriyama art on the cover instead of that weird 3d art style that's nothing that's something that i've ever understood for the majority of dragon quest releases or or dragon warrior releases why they never uh, almost never you pointed out some good examples but they almost never used the toriyama box art um like he's one of the biggest influences in the entire game series but yet they never capitalize on his box art which i think would be a great way to sell more copies of the game if uh, people could see that that vivid box art even if it's a case of like someone mistakes it for dragon ball z who cares like you know use that association use that that uh, familiarization with that that uh, art style especially these days do you think they'd capitalize that every time even dragon quest 11 they they used in-game uh, graphics for the art it was nice that they included the original Toriyama box art on the flip side too, but uh, I'm so never glad they did that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I do like it. Like when the when I saw the box art for Dragon Quest Builders uh, for the PS4 version, I did find it kind of oddly nostalgic seeing it as like this 3D art style because I mean, for one, it looks a lot better than it did like 20 years ago almost. <laughs> but I I did kind of like it because when I saw it, it's like oh, it kind of reminds me of um when I saw the box art for Dragon Warrior Monsters 1 when I originally got that as a kid. It kind of just gave me that sort of sense of deja vu slash nostalgia in a way, almost. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I'm going to go over the first game real briefly, uh, Dragon Quest 1, because they include both games on the cart. Um, in this game, you are the hero, and it's descendant of Erdrich, or in this translation, Lodo, and you are tasked to save the princess and defeat the Dragon Lord, saving the kingdom of Alvgart, 
<clears throat> saving the kingdom of Alucard from darkness by getting back the Spear of Light the Dragon Lord has stolen. So if you want, you can beat the game without even saving the princess. You can skip that entirely. I thought that's that's pretty cool. How like there's a lot of things in this game like you don't even have to bother to do if you if you really don't want to. Um, and, and plus, I've played this game recently for the Switch, and I've always forgotten how much the princess annoys me. <laughs> 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 All of the dialogue, I'm just like, shut up. I do not want to hear you talk at all. You are annoying. Why do I want to save you at all? Doesn't that love just, me? Yeah, exactly. But but that much. Uh, but one day I just need to play this game and just not bother to save her at all, just to, to see that option, because I know you can do that. Um, <laughs> thing that I thought was terrific uh, about this version, which I wish was in uh, subsequent remakes and ports, is that there's a, a great little opening movie that's unique to this version where it shows the Dragon Lord in his dragon form stealing the Spear of Light and his minions breaking through a wall to kidnap the Princess Gwalen. Um, I wish they had put that in uh, other remakes because that was really nice to see. Um, it's great fun to it's it's great fun to play this game. It only takes about eight hours to play, um, and it's all, I think it's also essential to play if you want to uh, have the last section of Dragon Quest Three have more impact, of which you guys I'm sure are aware of that. Uh, anyone have any thoughts on on this version uh, of Dragon Quest One before I go on to the next one? You know I that was like the, I just oh, sorry, sped through it. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I was going to say. Is it was a great one to just kind of speed through you know haven't played it so many other times and like you said pendy i really enjoyed how they added those cut the, the cut scenes to the beginning of it it just gives it that extra oomph that really no other version has done yeah imagine if they had redrawn those for like the switch release or something yeah. uh, that would have been great like an anime opening like link's awakening remake got oh yeah cool i was gonna say that um the game boy advance or game boy color version was the first version of one that i played and it was interesting playing that one after i had played some of the other ones like three four and five i didn't you know it was, it's kind of like you're going a step back but it was cool to see how the series kind of got its start and i know it wasn't the that wasn't playing like the original original but it was still cool to see like how the series got its start and how there was a lot of still of the elements that have remained with the series ever since that first game yeah you still it, it was a fun experience to a certain extent, Dragon Quest One is such a basic entry in the franchise, not to its demerit. It's just that different versions, I have to imagine, will still be samey simply because the mechanics themselves don't change all that much. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can change with one person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I do like it, though, how depending on what you name the hero, it can alter your stat growth. So you can get a little bit of a different experience every time. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. I do like to go back and replay Dragon Quest one every now and then. Kind of if you just need that quick RPG experience. It's kind of like what we were talking about on the uh, Final Fantasy episode, where it was kind of it's kind of like if you just need that quick little experience of sorts, but you don't want a full like huge eighty hour RPG. You know, just pop in Dragon Quest one real quick or play it on your phone, and you're good to go. Then once you finish that up after like ten hours or so, or five hours, whatever the pace. That's what I do a lot, actually. I play through the first one fairly frequently, just yeah, on the just phone, put... because a it was it's three dollars on the phone for mobile. Go buy it, play it. It's great. Oh, yeah. That was that was actually the first way I experienced. Uh, well, the entire Erdrick trilogy was on mobile. Nice. Okay, have... so I'm gonna. Go oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I have three on mobile, but I haven't finished it yet. I'm stuck in a desert town. Go find a claw. It'll help. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in the Have you been in the pyramid yet? 
I have no, I can't recall. It's been a while actually since I picked up that version of it. Um, okay. I think I've uh, still got to go into the pyramid. That's a challenge, yeah. Even if you don't get the claw, I remember that. Go get yourself a puff puff while you're at it. Yeah. yeah. If, yeah if, <laughs> if you do go into the pyramid though, you want to get that claw. Make sure that you get all the other treasures first before you try and get that, because <laughs> if you try and go back to get those treasures with that claw in your inventory or taken from the pyramid, oh man, it it's awful. I tried doing that one playthrough because i forgot to get some chest on one of the upper floors i i just gave up on getting them it was too many fights <laughs> i do recall oh. that was particularly unforgiving in the original version where it was like an extra fight every step mm-hmm. yep oh, yeah. i think i heard in the original that that curse from the golden claws followed you outside of the pyramid too and the only way you could stop it was like putting it into giving it to a character and dropping them off at the bar. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's at least what I've heard. Hmm. Never heard that one. But yeah, even in the Game Boy Color version, it doesn't follow you outside the pyramid, I think. Okay. But could be one of those things somebody said, but it, you know, it's more like you're mismer. Uh, they were misremembering or something, you know? Yeah, it's been so long. I heard that a few years ago, so I don't know how accurate it is, you know? Well, clearly somebody in this group needs to play the original. (laughs) (laughs) So that wasn't the only game on the cartridge, though, was it, Pendy? No, no. Uh, The other game you get for your two-for-one special was uh, Dragon Quest II. Uh, In this game, it's 100 years in the future from Dragon Quest I. Uh, you're you are yet another descendant of Erdrick, tasked with defeating the evil priest Hargon, together with your cousins, the Prince of Kanik and the Prince of Moonbrook. Hargon is trying to resurrect the evil god of destruction, Malra. Now, uh, I recently played both of these games on the Switch, and I just forgot how difficult that they uh, are relative to other Dragon Quest games. I had totally forgotten that. Um, even in these uh, remakes, you have to be careful. Um, I like a challenge, which is why my second run of Dragon Quest XI was with hard monsters on. But it's very interesting. Interesting. Um, I, re- I beat Hargon and Malroth on my first try, but I did have plenty of deaths that, in the battle that required frequent use of uh, two of my characters, uh, Moonbrook and Kanak, using Kazing. Um, I probably would have had a complete party wipe uh, had it not been for the fact that the remake, remake adds Kazing to uh, Princess of Moonbrook as well, which was not in the original. It, only Kanak had it. So, <laughs> and one of the three bosses leading to uh, the final boss, um, Pazuzu, the, he, if you remember, he's the purple monkey looking dude. He mm-hmm. killed me twice because he decides to do uh, Kamikaze to me two times in a row, wiping out my entire party. And um, like a lot of those little mini bosses, like once you kill them, they won't regenerate and you can just move on. Yeah, if he does Kamikaze and wipes himself out to wipe you out, no, he regenerates. So you have to keep trying to, trying to uh, kill him until uh, you do it right, apparently. So that was, uh. that was fun. <laughs> Um, I also can't think of any traditional RPG, at least that I've ever played, that's had such difficult enemies on the outside map. Like you have, you know, you're in that final area uh, near the, the the castle where Malroth is in Hargon, and you have enemies that are throwing sizzle, kaboom, whack at you constantly. You've got uh, gigant- gigantes that are doing all this major physical damage as well it is it's dangerous out there um and of course also the infamous cave drone uh this time when i did a recent playthrough i did it blind and i got through it okay uh and the only thing that i missed was the thunder sword um uh without a map that's that's pretty much impossible to find unless you you know where it is you would need to canvas an entire huge swath of the cave of a, a huge floor um, that's uh, where you go, go to, where you through that floor that has all the pits. 
um, and you have to know to go to the bottom corner and find a lone pit in that floor that takes you to where the sword is. So that's something that I missed when I did a recent playthrough blind. Um, the, this game just does not mess around with dungeon design. It's, it's not just the Cave to Rhone either. There are several dungeons in this game that will test your patience if you don't have a map, if you're doing a blind. Uh, another thing that I thought was very interesting in Dragon Quest II was... This was before they invented enemies like Mimics and Canna Boxes for treasure chests. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> instead of having those, they would just have treasure chests that would just straight up poison you. Um, oh, so that Ooh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Uh, also, um, in, you go to Olive Guard uh, that you visited in Dragon Quest One, and they're, it's nice that they put in like musical tracks from Dragon Quest One. That was really cool to hear. And uh, you can even visit Harlock Castle and chat with the Dragon Lord's great-grandson, great-great-grandson. I forget how it is exactly, but you can chat with him. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, par- paralysis, uh, being paralyzed, that wasn't established yet in the series. So instead of being paralyzed, you had certain enemies that would just put you to sleep with a with an, an attack. Like, if you guys remember the Man of Wars that you run into when you go in the ocean? Oh, um, Yeah. They would, um, instead of paralyzing you like they would in later entries, they would just put you to sleep sometimes from a simple attack. So you'd have that. Uh, one thing that I have to say that I hate, 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 hate about this game is uh, the Tombola. I hate the Tombola. I have no luck with it. Um, apparently there's a way to cheat it, but I didn't bother uh, trying to do that. Um, if you don't remember, the Tombola is a little game uh, in some towns where you can buy a Tombola. Well, not buy a Tombola ticket, but you can get a Tombola ticket, which you can get from uh, drops from enemies. Or from buying items, they'll just randomly give you a ticket. And you have to try and get three symbols to match to get a prize. And I think, like, the best prize, if you get, like, three, not stars, but uh, suns or something like that, then you get, like, a discount on all the merchants when you try and buy stuff. Um, After you beat the game, there's a lot of fun things. There's a lot of fun scenarios that you can explore. Um, In this island town where the men are lost at sea, there's one that returns home and everybody has a nice little reunion. Um, you get to re- <clears throat> you get to reunite with the dead king of uh, Moonbrook, where the king uh, gets to go to the afterworld in peace, and the princess pledges to rebuild the kingdom. Um, I tried to go most everywhere that there was people, uh, even some of the dungeons where there's like soldiers down in, in lower floors. I even went to a volcano cave where there's some soldiers were, and one was was like he was so happy that I went all the way down there just to give him the news. He's like, oh, you, you came to see me down here? Thank you. Um, there's the uh, there's a Puff Puff lady that gives a, a Puff Puff to not only the you, the Prince of Mindenhall, but also to the Prince of Canuck as well. And uh, also, uh, ironically, I brought a Tombola. Uh, for some reason, even though like it does not matter whatsoever, there's one town where this Tombola guy will just give you unlimited tickets, as many tickets as your inventory will hold. And then there's another town where the Tumbleo guy will let you play it to your heart's content. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Maybe you want to be a completionist at that point and try and get everything. Or maybe it's just to torture you. I don't know. I- I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys think about this entry? I like it's it. My, it's my favorite way to play uh, Dragon Quest II, to be honest. I like it more than doing a the Super Nintendo version or mobile. I haven't played the Switch version, so I don't have an opinion on that yet. But, yeah. Is, it, is the... Uh... Is it at all nerfed in comparison to the NES version? Oh, like, oh, oh, compared to I'm not sure if it's if it's uh, in terms of difficulty what compared to the Super Nintendo remake. Like, if there's much of a difference. What about the original? Oh, definitely compared to the original. Like all the remakes mm. are definitely nerfed. Like it's like I said, this is still this still was difficult for me, and it's definitely more difficult than a lot of the other Dragon Quest entries. But 
yeah, it's it's definitely nerfed to, uh, compared to the original. Yeah, two's not really like my favorite, so I, I haven't really jumped at the chance to play it in all of its different forms yet. I mean, I'll probably replay it one way, one day again in a different, probably the original version, but I've never actually booted up the, the GBC version. One thing I really appreciate about the Game Boy Color version of Dragon Quest Two is you can rename the Princess, uh, Princess Moonbrook and Prince Canock whenever you want. And I didn't even learn that until last month. Yeah, that was cute how they did it, too, because the king is like, uh, I don't, you, you got to team up with so-and-so and so-and-so. I can't remember their names. What are their names, Pendy? What are their names? And then that's when you can change their names if you want. Oh. Was I it? No, oh, I thought I thought the, uh, I thought it just rolled random names for them when you booted the game up, and then you would rename them with a button code from the, from you know, your file select menu. Oh, that might be just the, the Switch and the mobile version then. Because that, cause that... No, it's on the Game Boy Color because I, I I did it recently. Yeah, yeah. It's probably it's probably, probably pretty Game Oh, you're saying, you're saying that the other two do that. I got you. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. what the Switch version does is it automatically gives you a name for the two of them. But you can then tell the king... Well, the king will ask, uh, is that their names? You can tell him no, and then you can put them whatever names you want to. Yeah, because he's like unsure. He's like, I kind of forget. Do you, you Refresh my memory. It's coming down with Professor Oak disease. If you read name uh canock and then you go and talk to the king he he calls him by the new name but he makes a comment about was that his name yeah that's how uh, i ended up with dr bobo and uh, lady Ooh, when i replayed <laughs> it on the switch <laughs> see i'm the kind of per- the stupidest names i can't think of i'm just like dr bobo <laughs> we'll call him that <laughs> i'm the kind of person who who would like needs to name him Canock though, because it's like been said online so much that it, to me it's like the canon name almost. No, I understand. And people love to joke about uh, how he dies all the time, especially in the original in the original version, the hardest version. Like he dies constantly and is kind of weak. And they buffed in the remakes. They buff him up a lot, and there's more uh, weapons and armor you can equip him with. Um, and then Moonbrook learns Kazing as well, which helps. So there's there's stuff like that. Nice. All right. Well, we got a lot of games to talk about, so uh, I'm gonna move it right along um talk about a game that i played recently um and i don't know if any of y'all played this exact one but uh you've probably played the uh prequel to it or the first one in the series Uh, a couple weeks ago i was doing a grandia podcast and someone mentioned grandia parallel trippers and i was like oh i didn't know grandia had a game boy color one and like oh yeah i got fan translated well in looking that up i realized there was a second pokemon trading card game um which the original one was one of my favorite games for the game boy color uh not named uh dragon quest anything and have a lot of fond memories from it it was quick um game probably 10 12 hours but so i started playing uh, mid-july pokemon trading card game number two for the game boy color and it was a japan only release uh it got a fan translation a decade plus ago um kind of under the radar sub-series of pokemon but i had a blast playing it um just this year my kids and i have gotten really into the pokemon trading card game <clears throat> they're age four and six and we've got like 25 26 complete decks now we just buy the regular decks and every now and then i'll buy them an ex or a gx or something special to throw in them and we play it simple like i've looked online at like the, the card decks that you can play competitively and it's absolutely ridiculous like the game mechanics behind that they're <laughs> i can't understand it let alone a four or six year old um but just like the basic game pretty easy um I've been teaching my six-year-old quite a bit about reading and uh the uh He's, his math counting by tens going up and down all over the place is going pretty good. Um, 
he'll he'll yell at me all the time. I make a mistake. He's like, no, 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 that's 180 damage. But playing this one on yeah the Game Boy Color again, it was great. Um, you don't fight against Team Rocket because you know that would just be too passe. You fight Team Great Rocket, and uh, the game has you going kind of like the first game. You go to I think six different. Um, I don't think they're gyms. They call them clubs. You got to go to six different clubs and free the club members. And it corresponds to the six um, types of energy, the six types of Pokemon that were originally in the card game. And the only Pokemon you get in the game and the cards are Generation 1 stuff. It's still Gen 1. Um, I think it came out after the second generation of Pokemon games, but because of um, the card game lagging behind the regular game, it kept up with the card game stuff and there's a bunch of different packs there's a bunch of more cards than the original release and gosh there's actually like 700 cards in there and i didn't even get close to having half of them but i I think i beat it in about 17 hours uh and it's all just the pokemon trading card game it's you can make your own decks very quickly um i mean i saw some people online complain like oh i didn't play that one because I had to keep. I couldn't keep using the same deck, and that gets true about halfway through. Um, you beat the island you're on. You you clear all the gyms, and then they're like, ha ha ha! But you need to go to Team Great Rockets Island and beat us all there. So you go there, and there's another six like clubs that you have to beat. And a gameplay mechanic that gets introduced there is usually the one, two, or three bosses of the second colored gyms all have requirements. Like one of them wouldn't fight me unless I had four Pidgeys in my deck or one of them I was in a water um, place and he's like well you know I like to win so I'm only going to fight you if you only have fire energy in your deck so you got to quickly make yourself a fire deck or at least a normal deck that can survive on fire energy or something like that Um, and those weren't too bad Uh, there was one point where I had to it was the stupid Pidgey one of all the things I had one Pidgey card, and at the time I'd been playing for like 10, 11 hours and had tons of cards, but I had one frickin' Pidgey. So I had to go and look on an FAQ and figure out who I needed to go beat to get a booster pack that might have a Pidgey in it. And I will 100% admit to uh, save states coming, those battles. I'd win the battle, save a state, rip open the little uh, booster pack, and if it didn't have Pidgey in it, I'd reload, reload, reload until it did. You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, I was like, you know... This is not a long game. I'm not spending, you know, 20 hours on frickin' random generated Pidgeys. <laughs> Don't blame you. Yeah. And then the end boss at one point asked me for, like, four specific cards. I was like, holy crap, how am I going to get those cards? I don't have any of them. And I look online, and it's like, oh, you have to go back to the previous island, beat the gym in the middle, and you'll get all those cards. So I did that, and I was right back at the final battle 30 minutes later. So it was fun. It was... uh maybe 15, 16 hours total, and the game moves quickly. You can hold down a button to kind of fast forward. Um, It was funny. You could run in that game before you could run in any other Pokemon game. You could hold down the B button, and your guy would dash around everywhere. Yeah, see, I never played two. I played a little bit of the first uh, trading card game. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it basically did that, did it again. I mean, there's no great story. Team Great Rocket just wants to steal cards. So you yeah. go beat them up to stop them from stealing cards. I mean, that's the whole story. <laughs> so it's basically the first one, but with more cards, right? More cards, yeah. I guess whatever the first expansion decks started happening back then, I I wasn't around in that scene. <laughs> I babysat in 99 and had to teach the kids how to play the game that I babysat. And then 
That was about it. Other than from then until this past Christmas, I'd never held a Pokemon card in my hand. Yeah, I used to collect them because we all did. I didn't really, I mean, I had a cousin I could play with sometimes, but we didn't. We were young and didn't really get the rules. And mm. uh, I didn't really like go to like tournaments or meetups or anything. But that, that was my first exposure to actually... The first one was, anyway, uh, to understanding the rules. Um, I feel like those games are kind of were kind of ahead of their time. Just uh, like now, you've got so many you've got so many real life card games that have video game versions of them, and then of course there are card games that are only digital. But it, I, I don't think at that time there were very many like video games based around real card games. Were there? I can't imagine there were. I mean. I don't think Magic the Gathering got many video adaptations until more recently. I think the only other card game that I can think of around that time was probably an old PS1 game. What was it called? Like Cardia or something from Atlas. Hmm. What Was there one with Baton Kaidos or something like that? What, yeah, that, that was, was a, a GameCube game. Yeah, that okay. came out in like 2003. Yeah, that was by the people who... I believe that they were the folks who... Have made like Xenoblade Chronicles and stuff, if I remember right. Yeah, they were the, they're Monolith Soft, so they, okay. did, they did all yeah they did all did all that. Okay. I know when when Yu-Gi-Oh was big, there were a few different uh, card battler like video games based around it. Not all like for Game Boy Advance and for PC even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my cousins had uh, one of the PS One uh, games for Yu-Gi-Oh, and when I was a kid, that was one of the big card games was mm-hmm. that one because a lot of us in school would collect those Yu-Gi-Oh cards and I still have my booklets full of cards that was the big thing for sure yeah I, I sold all my Pokemon cards like uh, 11 12 years ago right once Pokemon was sort of in its slump <laughs> so it was like the worst time to do it I think I sold them all for like $300 uh-huh. if I'd yeah, if I'd held on to them, I don't, I don't know what they're worth now, but, I mean, Pokemon's bigger now than it was then, so surely they would be worth more. Yeah, I guess it depends on which ones. I know uh, my brother-in-law gave my son um, a bunch of cards for Christmas. Um, I, it was, I, we didn't meet up with him till maybe about a week after Christmas, and we had I'd bought them six decks of cards for Christmas, and we had learned to play, and my God, we played like 24 games with these six decks easily within a week. And so he comes in and he gives him like 50, 60, 70 cards or actually maybe a big pile of them. And I think what he did was the original cards um, from the mid 90s, late 90s, whatever. He went through and gave like one copy of anything he had duplicates to to my son. And my son took one look at him and he's like, I'm not putting these in any decks. Because like, <laughs> like a great card back then would have like 90 hit points and be able to do like 40 or 50 for its attack whereas nowadays these cards all go i mean there's normal ones that have 120 hit points and the second evolutions in the 200s and they're doing 120 150 attack or whatever so yeah my son looked at those and he's like nah so he was looking over my shoulder as i was playing on uh the the game boy color a couple weeks ago and he's like those look like uncle brian's cards (laughs) just because he was looking at the the attack power and everything of them so Yeah. yeah they're way inflation has hit I, I don't know when that are, happened, but yeah, I think those aren't even like in the current. I mean, I don't, I don't, I only half know what I'm talking about. Like the old ones don't even, they're not even in the current rule set, are they? Like it's like a sort of like, I mean, I know it follows the same rules, but it's like a different game almost. They I have expanded and whatever things that have different as far back as you can go. I know some guy at work 
is big time into the competitive scene and i was telling him something about like oh I, we got some double colorless energy cards to put in our decks or whatever he's like oh you can't use them don't ever teach your sons to use them they've been banned for two years or basically the fight <laughs> ran out two years ago or something like that i was like dude we're not going competitive here with a six-year-old we're fine <laughs> <laughs> but yeah those old cards wouldn't match up and i guess you could use them but it really wouldn't and and yeah if you're in an official tournament i think something like four years old is the key it so has to be within the last four years is that uh-huh so they they basically uh-huh. rotate out automatically if they don't keep printing them well that sounds like something i would never want to invest my money or time into <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, what's great is I'll go online and buy, let's see, I guess eight years ago, they started these EX cards, which are really Mm -hmm. powerful ones. And then they've evolved that into GX and now V. And now the EX cards aren't allowed anymore because they're way too old. So I go on um, a website and I'll just pick up like four or five of these EX cards that are super powerful for like a buck and a quarter each. And like the default setting on the website is $5 and up is free shipping. So I'll just like usually buy five of them, pay six bucks. And for the price of one and a half booster packs, I've got these six great cards for us to put in our decks. Like we don't care. We're not going anywhere. Kids have fun with them. Yeah, that's all that matters with that. Exactly. Yep. So let's move on to, and I'm just kind of looking now at an image I'm putting together for our cover art for this one. Let's talk Lufia. Lufia. Brurian, that was you. All right. Well, if you are not familiar, there were, there's like a total, I think, of four Lufia games in total officially released. Two of them were on the Super Nintendo, and one was on the Game Boy Color, and one was on the Game Boy Advance. We're going to talk about the Game Boy Color one. It was called uh, Lufia The Legend Returns. And um, this one takes place about 100 years after the events of the first game, which takes place 100 years after the events of the second game. So it's kind of this weird, the second one happens first, and then the first game happens, and then this game happens. Um, It was released for the Game Boy Color, I believe, in 2001, because I remember it coming out when I was still in high school at the time. Uh, It's a really neat RPG, because if if you've played any of the previous ones, they're very standard fare RPG, but this one is a little different. It's a multi, or not a multi, but it is a mystery dungeon game. Hmm. Um, And if you've never played a mystery dungeon game, uh, all the dungeons in the game are randomly generated and you move between rooms and fight monsters on the field so there's no like random battles but in this one there are random battles um it's it's kind of this weird nexus of mystery dungeon and rpg at the same time because i can't remember if the uh if torneko no daiboken went into a battle screen or not i think you just kind of put stuff on the field (laughs) but on this one when you contact enemies you go into a battle screen and you have a standard RPG menu set up. And with this one, it, it's a little different there. Uh, if anybody has played, what was the name of it? Um, Radiant Historia, I think, for the 3DS. Mm-hmm. You know how it's got that grid-based um, setup and everything? You know, I guess you could also think to it uh, akin to Mega Man Battle Network as well. You've kind of got a grid, but uh, you have characters in each slot. So it's it's like a, it's got columns and rows, and in, you can set up your party because you've got, I think you come across like 10, 12 characters throughout the, uh, the whole gist of the story, and you can strategically place them. So you can have several characters in a column or you can have several characters in a row. But where it really matters is 
in column form, you have each character from a column attack. So that way you can do um, different, st different strategic setups. And if you place people on the back of the column compared to the front of the column, they can't get hit. But if you choose someone specifically from the column, that's the only person from that column that gets to go. So there's a, there's a whole lot of whole lot of strategize, strategizing that you can do with this. Um, but in relevance to the story, uh, the game follows um, the teenager named Wayne, who is a descendant of Maxim from the hero from Lufia 2. So, you know, more or less all of the heroes of all of the games are descendant of the original hero Maxim. And one day you've got this mysterious woman that kind of arrives in a village looking for a swordsman, and she runs into you, much like Lufia does in the first Lufia game. And she basically drags you on a quest to save the world from destruction. Has uh, anybody ever played any of the Lufia games before? No, you know, but I... don't you hate it when that happens? You're just walking yeah. around and someone comes along and they just like, <laughs> save the world! <laughs> You know, I played the first two. I, gosh, summers back in the early 2000s, I was married to a pharmacist and I was home all summer because, and I would just plow through games. So these were a couple that I just plowed through and I have almost no memory of it. No memory? Yeah. The second that, that... one was Rise of the Sinstrels, right? Sinstrels, yeah, that's, yeah, whatever. that's the one. Yep. Yeah. And I remember it was placed before, but other than that and just being, you know, your, your standard RPG fare. I think you used to attack in battle just by pressing up or down or left or right on the controls. You, yeah, you is... choose your menu that way because okay. it, it, it was it was in a neutral state and then you would go up for attack, down for mm -hmm. defend, left for magic, right for items or something like that. Yeah, I remember it wasn't like as like Dragon Quest, you're in a menu all the time going through stuff. Yeah. As so... much, but other than that, that's, that's the most I can tell you about the Lufia duology there. So is this one worth it? For being a little different it's it's if if you like interesting combat systems or just mystery dungeon games i would i would definitely suggest it it's it's a very fun game um it's very standard fare as far as like an rpg story goes it's kind of not all that memorable mm -hmm. um but you do you do get some fun dialogue between like the main character and uh you you do encounter one of the sinstrels throughout the game i think his name was gaties like at the very beginning of the game, you go, I think, to the uh, one of the towers that he's living in, and he gets upset and he just destroys it because he can. And uh, one of the like early pieces of dialogue you get are, you know, your hero Wayne or whatever his name was is agging him on, even though he knows who he is, and uh, he's like, "You you dare insult me?" And he's just like, basically, like, "Screw you, I do." <laughs> So you saying that the hero's name is Wayne, it just makes me think of Wayne's world. And him egging on somebody <laughs> like that just sounds like what a Wayne would do. <laughs> but yeah, this is basically kind of a, a a great adventure game. Kind of kind of a it's a lot of fun. It reminded me a lot of Grandia One in terms of a grand adventure, because you kinda go all over the uh, all over the world and recruit dozens and dozens of people. Um, mm -hmm. unfortunately it it comes one of those of they all have very paper thin personalities because there's only so much you can develop in a very short game, because I think I'd beat this in about 15 or 20 hours. Mm -hmm. The art is great for it, though. I really like the uh, character art they did for everybody. And the main theme for it, when you first boot up the game before you get to the start menu, has like a, it's a very banging. Like, it's really good for a Game Boy color cartridge. 
Nice. Kind of like that. It's kind of like that Pictionary theme from the NES game, if you've ever heard that. It's like, wow, this is a really good song attached to a game that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. And so that was Lufia the Legend Returns, right? Lufia the Legend Returns. Yeah. Nice. Was that the third game? Because I thought we had a discussion a while ago where we it were talking is... about like it's technically like the third or fourth game or something. I'm not sure where the Game Boy Advance title takes place in the grand scheme of Lufia lore, but... This one takes place after the events of the very first Lufia game. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know, it's essentially like you play the second one, then the first one, and then this one. Although I don't think uh, between, you know, the first game and this game, there's any kind of connecting lore other than the main hero is a descendant of the big hero. And that's the thinnest excuse you need to make yourself a Game Boy game. Exactly. All right. Um, we're going to move into Harvest Moon, uh-oh, Friends of Mineral Town. I almost said uh, more Friends of Mineral Town, but no, that's a different one. Oust, well, you, you want to talk about that one, right? Yeah. Well, uh, more Friends of Mineral Town is basically the same, just you're a girl instead, and you can only date uh, male bachelors. But um, yeah. Yes, we're uh, getting two for one here. We just found out about the second one. <laughs> yeah, it's not really so much of a sequel as it is just the girl version, which is what they used to do. Um, in the Switch remake, they sort of just mushed them together, which is probably how they should have been done to begin with. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, Friends of Mineral Town. I mean, I would I would start this out by saying like it's a Harvest Moon game. What else? What more can you really say about it if if uh, anyone's played Harvest Moon? But um, out of all of the series, out of the entire series, it's really at least the one that the fans uh, say is like the best one. It seems to uh, boil the series down like to its best elements. Um, personally, my favorite will always be the 64 version, just because that's the first one I played. But uh, f- uh, definitely, this one is. I can see how it took the formula and just added everything it needed to be for it to be its best, uh, short of Stardew Valley, which I feel did that really the the most. Um, but, uh, I mean, in, in fact, I would even say Stardew Valley used Friends of Mineral Town as a blueprint as opposed to any other games in the series. Um, just because of uh, you have you have all of the traditional like um, story stuff with uh, different bachelorettes because I've put most of my time in the in the original version where you hear the uh, male farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't played as much of of more friends of Mineral Town. Although I will say more friends of Mineral Town is um, definitely it has the better translation of the two. <laughs> Uh, and uh, is less buggy. I've uh, I've only been playing the the first one or the original Friends of Mineral Town. Uh, I've only been playing it like for the past couple of weeks. But like right off the bat, you you encounter a few different things here and there where you can tell. Uh, well, I don't really know what they were doing when they translated this game because uh, <laughs> uh, I mean there are some mistakes in there. It's like how did this even pass QA? It's not even like a I mean, there are plenty of typos and stuff, like where they spell they spell um, flour as in the plant, like they spell it like baking flour. Mm-hmm. But that's more understandable than some things, like it's just missing punctuation, or uh, the, when you read the description for the fishing rod, it, it's not even intelligible. <laughs> you put a screenshot of that up for all of us. Yes. Yeah. I saw, yeah. Yeah. That, that I, was a mess. Without looking at it, I can't tell you exactly what it said, but it's not. It's. I think they got one whole word in there. Uh, and t- like they, I think fishing is the only word that's actually a real word. 
Yeah, it looked like some messed up copy paste thing that just had other stuff in there too. And yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and there's also uh, when you talk to in one of the events, you talk to the um, the preacher, and uh, in the English version, he just starts speaking German. It's like uh, it's <laughs> it's like they just threw some of the German text in there. In, in fact, and I read that happens later on too with another character. So I don't I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> and that that seems to be typical for the uh, old Natsumi translations. Um, the uh, the the company that developed these games, Marvelous, they uh, have their own in-house publisher publisher now, and they seem to do a much better job than Natsumi ever did. Or or Natsume, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Ah, uh, one or the other. <laughs> so, um, did they just remake this for like the Switch or something? Yeah. Or make it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, I wanna... it's a complete remake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty faithful. Um, it uh, it goes by the name Story of Seasons because they've they've since re- had to rebrand their name when they got their own publisher. Which mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's another whole story. Um, I guess I could go into it a little bit, but basically, uh, the the actual name of of the Harvest Moon series is. Uh, Boko Mono, that's the shortened name for it in Japan. And uh, when they brought it over here, they localized it as Harvest Moon through Natsumi publishing it and translating it. And uh, since then, Marvelous acquired their own publisher, Xseed, but they didn't take the rights to the name Harvest Moon with them. Natsumi retains those rights. So they had to come up with their own name, and they actually came up with a name that's closer to the original Japanese, which the original name is translates to Ranch Story. So they've uh, they call it uh, Story of Seasons now, but Natsumi has uh, taken the Harvest Moon logo, the name, and then branding everything, and started their own little series under that. Which to me, that I understand why it's legal, but the uh, false advertising that that sort of comes from that to me makes it a gray area because I know there are plenty of people buying those games thinking it's Harvest Moon when it's literally not. Yeah, it'd be like somebody picking up the. Uh named dragon warrior these days and start publishing you know 16 yeah. bit games calling them dragon warrior but it has nothing to do with the company that made those right yeah that's mm-hmm. a good example the continuity is a lie mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh the switch version uh, uh you know if, i know we're talking about gba games here but if you're rec- if you're asking for suggestions of which one to play unless you just only play retro games i would i would suggest the switch version over the original just because it has a lot of quality life improvements and stuff, but the original is completely playable. It, you know, it's not, uh, it's not how some, I guess, how some people consider some older games to be unplayable. It's, uh, it's not, not very grindy. It's, uh, like I said, it seems to be like the, the perfect representation of old school Harvest Moon. Nice. So yeah, I mean, Harvest Moon, the, uh, the original one for the Super Nintendo. I was tutoring mm-hmm. some kid in like 97 or 98, um, some middle school kid, and he's like, oh, have you ever played this Harvest Moon game? And I was like, ah, I don't really play my Super Nintendo much. He's like, no, 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 you got to get an emulator and emulate it. And <laughs> so I was like, I've never heard of this. So I did it, and I played Harvest Moon maybe for a week, and that's when I all of a sudden was like, wait a minute, there's other games that I used to like. Final Fantasy, Dragon Warrior, what happened to that? those series? And I yeah. just not kept up with any gaming news in the mid 90s really um and high school and college kind of went by and i was playing a lot of madden and working and working two jobs and going to school and all of a sudden i was like oh there's a lot of super nintendo games i haven't played so harvest moon was kind of the the gateway my gateway into emulation and back to rpgs so yeah good times 
Yeah, like I said, I started on the Nintendo 64. I, th- I think I must have uh, rented that cartridge like 10 weekends in a row before my mom finally bought it. And she was like, <laughs> we would have saved so much more money if I had just bought you the game. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a few weeks ago, um, it, it was when the Switch version of uh, Friends of Mineral Town was coming out. I had asked on uh, XSeed's page about like one of the advertisements for the game. I was like, well, why is it? I mean, I know that this is a Harvest Moon game, so why is it called Story of Seasons now? And luckily, some nice people in the comments, and I do sincerely mean nice, <laughs> they yeah. were they actually explained like what the deal was and how like everything you talked about a little bit a, a little bit ago, Aust. I was like, yeah. oh, I didn't realize. Never really, you know, you never you don't really hear about that sort of behind the scenes stuff. So it was interesting to hear that from people about why it was changed to Story of Seasons. Yeah, it's kind of a complicated story, and uh, it doesn't. It doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. I mean, it. Like I said, I don't. I understand how they retain the rights, but I. It. It doesn't. It seems like a. At the very least, like a scummy move on Natsume's part, just to continue making a, a game franchise on a name that does. It's not even just the name. It's like the logo on the box and everything is the same. But oh yeah, it's like they're just sitting on what is it the uh, the IP sit, the name sit, yeah. Yeah, sitting on that IP and just like, oh, cool. You're not going to use this one anymore? <laughs> we got gotcha. you. We'll find somebody who'll code something. All right, we're going to keep this moving right along. Brother Jaybird, you want to talk about Mario and Luigi Superstar on the Game Boy Advance. Take it away. Uh, uh, this was the good one. Um, now, Mario's got a bit of history in the RPG genre, uh, thanks to the folks at Squaresoft. Um Back in the day, in the mid-90s, at the tail end of the Super Nintendo era, after the Nintendo 64 had come out, uh, Mario uh, had a dedicated RPG published and created by Square, which was something unfamiliar uh, to Mario at the time, which was mostly a platformer and occasional novelty kart racer franchise. Um, what was interesting about that is that it actually spawned maybe two, fra- at least two franchises based off of this original Super Mario RPG. The first one was called Paper Mario, and the second one, which I'm going to talk about in a second, was Mario and Luigi RPG. Now, Mario and Luigi RPG has kind of a vague sense of continuity with itself. The stories of the different games that have come out for the Game Boy Advance, the DS, and the later handhelds have been more or less at least vaguely consistent with each other. There was also in the early days a little bit of overlap with Paper Mario. But what made Mario and Luigi distinct from what we would call what Paper Mario its sister series was that unlike Paper Mario and Mario RPG before that, rather than simply augmenting the classic battle math um, of titles past, whereas during your attack phase, if you hit a certain sequence correctly, you could do a little bit more damage, um, or if you receive damage, if you hit um, the right keys correctly, you could minimize damage. Mario and Luigi transformed uh, their battle sequence by basically allowing you to control whether or not you were hit. So instead of simply negating some of the damage, you could negate all of the damage, which more or less transformed that particular gameplay into your ability to completely control the flow of combat rather than simply uh, 
modify the battle math. That was one of the big things that set Mario and Luigi apart from other RPGs, and both internally at Nintendo and externally with others, was this ability to, well, basically to control the flow. So that was one of the big big things about it. The second one was that other was that unlike other Mario RPGs, which focused on Mario at the center and gave him a supporting cast, this one, as the title uh, may have indicated already, uh, put Luigi right up front with Mario. So you were running two characters simultaneously at all times as equals in the in the game, mm-hmm. which was the distinguishing hallmark of the franchise. Um, later games would modify this formula a little bit. Uh, the sequel game for the DS gave you Baby Mario and Baby Luigi, so you were running four characters at the same time. Um, there was one recently released for the 3DS for the 3DS that crossed over with Paper Mario uh, that allowed you to run three characters at the same time. But the the basic mechanics have been more or less the same. You've got your Mario, you've got your Luigi, and you've got more or less a challenge to see whether you've got the chops to control the flow of battle. Nice. I always loved this series. Um, this was always fun to play. I liked all the timed defensive moves and offensive moves that you could do in this game series. And I don't know, is this the, the series where they kind of established personality of luigi that everybody is pretty much pretty much familiar with because uh he was hilarious in these games and these games always had a great amount of uh humor in it yes and no for that uh pendy because the luigi being kind of more cowardly and comedic sort of started with um luigi's mansion on the gamecube uh before that luigi was more mark it's kind of like how martinez voice changed for the character over time like, on the N64 games, either Luigi had, like, a super high-pitched voice because of the Japanese voice actor, or if Martin A was the voice actor, he had a noticeably deeper voice than Mario, and he didn't seem quite as uh, comedic or uh, as cowardly. But then, with starting with Luigi's Mansion, that's where Luigi sort of developed his more cowardly personality, but... Uh, Mario and Luigi games have really fleshed that out a lot more and sort of made Luigi seem like he's like, like everybody will either call him Green Stash or Green Mario or Green Bro. Like they never remember what his name is. <laughs> yeah, this was the era that a lot of Mario characters started getting fleshed out. Mario has been more or less consistent from day one, but this was the era the the GameCube Game Boy era gave Luigi his personality, introduced Toadsworth, um, started setting out a lot of bases for the characters. They created a Bowser Jr. around this time. He wouldn't show up until later, but this was when they really started um, building out Mario's world. Yeah, my favorite sequel to this is uh, Bowser's Inside Story, um, where you get to play as Bowser, um, and you play in, literally inside Bowser as well. You get miniaturized and have to go through uh, and do things. But And then plus there's like, you actually had to like tip the DS as you played like a giant size Bowser and did like giant size battles, which were tremendously fun as well. <laughs> I always yeah, really these... enjoyed uh, Dream Team for similar reasons for the whole, you know, moving the 3DS to do attacks. But I also just really liked the overall aesthetic of Dream Team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, Dream the... Team games, like all the 3DS games, have a really good uh, visual art style to them. Like the sprites for Mario and Luigi are really expressive, very detailed. A lot of the NPC sprites are the same way. And even though half of the 3DS games use 3D environments, like 
whether it was the 3D environments or the fully 2D environments like the two remakes saw, they all looked pretty good. And honestly, I think even the original uh, Game Boy Advance version of Superstar Saga and the two DS originals for uh, Partners in Time and Bowser's Inside Story still hold up really well, too, graphically, especially mm-hmm. Bowser's Inside Story. That game for is probably one of the best 2D-looking DS games by far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this particular Mario series has a lot of creativity. <laughs> it is oozing creativity. Um, I I will admit there's something I prefer about the first game, though, way back when. Um, each game has its own set of combination attacks for Mario and Luigi and anyone else there. Um, whoever their uh, tertiary partner may be, uh, where you pass techniques back and forth in kind of a chain reaction um, and until you do excessive quantities of damage over above your standard or even your special attacks. But what the first game did was these combination attacks were called bros moves, and they were directly tied to the abilities that you would get or collect over the course of your adventure. So you started out jumping. Well, in the first world and the, what was it, the Bean Bean Kingdom, the, the Star Bean Fields? It's the Stardust Fields. Stardust Fields, yes, thank you. Um, you both could jump. That was great. Classic Mario techniques until you met these brothers, one red, one green, uh, who would teach you how to do your spiral jump and your long jump. And you would later follow these up by learning how to do long jump and spin jump attacks in battle. And there would be lots of clever animation uh, with these two characters interacting as they learn to do their techniques. Um, You picked up hammers later and you would learn to do hammer moves in the Chuckle Huck Woods. Was that it? Yep. Yeah. So you got your combination attacks. So every time you'd gain a new set of overworld abilities in one or two chapters, you would follow that up with a set of combination abilities for battle. And I always liked how that tied together. Um, but I do appreciate that they went the extra step beyond that in which uh, if you use these uh, combination techniques, these bros moves over time, Mario would have a brain flash and he'd teach he'd more or less uh, come up with a variant of your attack. So rather than simply using the same set of techniques, the originally four apiece, each would get its own variant ending. So you went from a total of eight to a total of 16 moves, and I was very impressed with that. It was a very nice bit of integration between the overworld and the combat mechanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that I wish the other games had implemented more of was the bros attack stuff, because with a lot of the other Mario and Luigi games, it's you either just obtain like special items to do attacks or you'll get like a gift to use a new bros attacks. They're still called bros attacks, even though it's more like you're just using an item rather than their own natural skills that they get. And um, I did like how Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga, how they, like what you were describing, uh, Brother Jaybird, where you actually get to see them use the moves in battle. And if you use them enough, it's like, hey, now we can use the advanced version to do even more crazy amounts of damage. So it was a reward to use these skills over and over again, rather than just to be like, oh, well, Here's a strong enemy. Let's use that to kill it real quick. So you felt that natural sense of progression and reward for going kind of the extra mile using those moves rather than in the the other games where it's just like, oh, I got the item for it. So let's use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the follow ups always kind of felt way more generic than they should have been, which was always disappointing. 
I think Dream Team kind of realized that when they started introducing specific uh, dreamy Luigi moves to reflect the characters more than just the generic items from Partners in Time and Bowser's Inside Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, I did enjoy uh, how that how Dream Team handled it and how. I believe it was Paper Jam that did sort of the same thing too, where like, it's been a while since I've played that one, but I think it was sort of the same thing where the characters might get, or no, I remember it was, you had to catch Nabbit uh, from the new Super Mario Brothers games and you would get a new item from him and the bros would all sort of figure out how to use the item together in, in battle. And, you know, even though we're mainly talking about Superstar Saga, I will say real quick that uh, Paper Jam, that was one that I had trouble finding myself, a physical copy. Of. And, you know, it actually was pretty good, I thought. It was pretty funny. It unfortunately does kind of have the usual Mario stuff where it's like Ice World, Lava World, or, um, yeah, Ice Level, Grass Level, Desert Level, nothing too crazy or, like, fanciful like some of the other games have done. But on the whole, the gameplay still felt really fun to play through and you know, sort of just exploring the levels and worlds and everything. And the battles felt like a good progression. Like, cause it was really fun how you, how seeing how this series keeps sort of the same basic gameplay designs where you use A for Mario, B for Luigi, and like you might use Y or X for whatever other characters you might have. It was cool seeing how, as the games have changed, how they've sort of implemented the other characters. Like, how in Paper Jam, for instance, there's attacks where you have to use Paper Mario to help uh, Mario and Luigi avoid attacks. Because he'll turn into like a paper airplane and fly over him and he picks him up real quick. Or how in Bowser's Inside Story, where Bowser might be fighting an enemy on the overworld, he'll swallow one of the enemies with one of his special abilities. And then Mario and Luigi fight it from the inside. Bowser spits it back out and he can keep attacking it then. So it's cool to see how that sort of changed and how um, sort of the combat has changed, but still sort of remained the same. Sort of like how Dragon Quest handles its combat from game to game. Yeah, I like it. And it, it also helps keep each installment in the franchise pretty fresh because each one is offering a more or less unique experience. Mm-hmm. It was always funny to uh, hear the characters talk to each other, too, because Mario was always like, and then Luigi was like, I enjoy the gibberish talk. It really gives them character. It does. I always like it, too, how one of my favorite scenes from Superstar Saga, it's towards the end of the game after you've completed the jokes and dungeon where... Uh, Luigi ends up getting separated from Mario as a plan to try and get <laughs> Princess Peach back from the villain. And uh, when Luigi, when uh, Mario does find Luigi, he's tied up. Well, Mario ends up freeing him. And of all the characters in the game, like the only one who really will ever give Luigi the respect he he deserves is Mario, since Mario knows how Luigi really is and not you know just a big coward like everybody sees him as. I love it how when Mario frees him, Luigi like slowly looks up and you hear the two of them go Mario, and Mario goes Luigi, and they give each other a big old hug. It's really nice to see that sort of brotherly love between the two of them, since you normally don't see that a lot in the Mario games. All right. So from a Mario to another, uh, I guess it probably wasn't as popular back then, but it is quite popular now. Yangus, you wanted to talk Fire Emblem. Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Fire Emblem, the Sacred Stones. That was one of the first games that we got over here in the West, because just for quick history recap, Fire Emblem was a series that started on the 
uh, NES or uh, Famicom back in the day, but we never saw any installments until Fire Emblem sort of got this recognition thanks to uh, Smash Brothers when uh, Marth and Roy from that series were added in as playable characters for Smash Melee. Um, so well, the first game that we got was for the, the Game Boy Advance, which they just renamed to Fire Emblem instead of Fire Emblem the Blazing Sword, like it's called in Japan. And that's actually one of the games related to uh, the character who was added to Smash, Roy. But the second game that we got for the Game Boy Advance was Fire Emblem the Sacred Stones, which it's its entire, uh, it's, it's its own thing entirely. So the game was one of the first ones that we got, and by most Fire Emblem fans' opinions, it's one of the easiest games in the series. And that's, that is a good thing though, because that was actually my introduction to the series. I ended up playing it through the 3DS Ambassador program because I had bought my 3DS around the time of launch for the handheld. And, you know, at that point it was like $250 and they eventually discounted the price, but they gave everybody who had bought it for that higher price beforehand uh, the ability to get some free Game Boy Advance and uh, Nintendo Entertainment System games. And one of them was Sacred Stones. Um, Sacred Stones is a game that takes place in its own continent. It has nothing really to do with any other Fire Emblem game and it focuses on this one large continent where it's split into five different kingdoms each of them having one of these special items called the sacred stones uh, essentially whoever has control of a sacred stone will essentially have power for their kingdom and sort of it's basically like a sacred MacGuffin almost where if you have said item you'll be able to do wondrous things like powerful magic you know you'll be able to learn control monsters you know the list just kind of depends depending on what stone that you have in your possession so the game focuses on uh, the princess Erica and eventually her brother, I believe his name is pronounced as Arafem. I've never been sure how to say it. And how the game starts off is you actually start with Erica. You work up to about uh, chapter 10 or 11, I believe. And then eventually you can actually do a split path where you either continue playing as Erica and experience her story or you pick Arafem and experience his story. What's cool about Fire Emblem The Sacred Stones is that the game, while it is an easy game to get into and it's a good game for beginners for Fire Emblem, it can also end up being one of the hardest games too because... Uh, like most of the games, it usually has three difficulty settings, um, easy, normal, and hard. Well, even if you pick normal and you pick Arafim's path, his path in particular is pretty hard. And I've seen people that are Fire Emblem veterans even say that his path is difficult, even if they know what they're doing and what to expect. I don't remember fully everything from his path, but I do remember from the time that I did a run of his uh, part of the story instead of Erica's. It definitely can kick your butt if you're not paying attention to what you're doing. That's for sure. Um, so since this one was my sort of introduction to the series, it was where I sort of learned, you know, what to do in a strategy RPG since it wasn't something I was super familiar with. But honestly, I thought that Sacred Stones was a good starting point. And if you're someone who hasn't really played a Fire Emblem game or hasn't played a strategy RPG much before, Sacred Stones is a good starting point to go with because if you play on the easy mode or the normal difficulty, the game does a good job sort of teaching you how to play, especially if you play on easy. Like, it's called easy, but don't make it feel like, oh, well, I've got to play, you know, playing on easy. That's not very good. It's a really good way to learn how to, like, uh, play one of these strategy games, especially in the Fire Emblem style, where you have the weapons that lose their strength over time, or not not lose their strength they lose their charges over time and eventually they might break on you and what's nice about sacred stones is that you get some pretty good characters at the beginning points of the game which is good for if you play on the harder difficulties but also really nice if you play on the easier settings because then you can figure out okay so there's the weapon triangle so swords will beat out 
uh, axes. Axes will beat lances and so on and so forth. And so it's a good way to see from a new player's perspective or from a veteran, like, okay, well, this character has this sort of weapon and he's going to do better against this sort of character. And the game will sort of give you hints about that too, depending on what difficulty you play on. Uh, what I enjoyed about Secret Stones in particular was that for one, it sort of gave me sort of the like the basics of what Fire Emblem tends to go for, where even though the story might just be sort of the uh, the standard, oh, the country's going to war, we have to put a stop to it, that you see that it mainly comes down to its character interactions and how everyone sort of bounces off each other and how this small army will slowly grow over time and eventually become this full force of people from all the different uh, countries within that continent or people of different uh, backgrounds and genders and whatever the case might be. Everybody will come together in order to form this art, this sort of ragtag army that even though it doesn't seem like on paper, they should all work well together that, that you can see it and experience that there is this real camaraderie between them. Like one of my favorite uh, party interactions is when you can recruit one of the trainee characters, Amelia, who she meet her in Erica's path, like in chapter 12 or 13, I believe when you're trying to get through this Harbor town to liberate it from pirates. And this girl, Amelia, who shows up for the enemy enemy's troops it's like, all right, I'm a new recruit. I'm going to show him what I got. I'm going to be a real heavy hitter. And I'm going to, you know, show the general that he can be proud of me. And of course, everyone just looks over her because she's just this little girl who's maybe like in her teens and thinks she's a hot shot. Well, funny enough, if you have one of your characters who I believe his name was uh, Cedric or something like that, or no, I, think, I believe it was Seth. It was one of the horsemen. If you end up having him go up to Amelia, he'll be like, what are you doing over here? I thought all the civilians were out of town. She'll try and tell him that, no, I'm part of the enemy army, but he won't listen to her. Ends up being like, okay, well, look, you're going to come with me. I don't think it's safe for you a little girl like you to be out here on your own. And she just ends up joining your party and then has to try and explain through the support conversations that she's part of the enemy troops, but she stopped, She somehow got roped into your forces. So you have funny little moments like that. But then you also have these sincere moments where like one of the first characters you recruit and his son, Ross, uh, Ross is one of the other trainee units and he wants to become a great fighter like his dad. But he uh, ends up talking with his dad through the support conversations that you know, he was his big inspiration. He wants to try and be like him, but he thinks his father was a coward because he originally left the kingdom that he was supposed to protect. Well, then you find out from the dad that he was originally a general, but he also didn't really like how the wars and everything would go. Uh, Garcia is his name, and he just ultimately decided that he needed to get away from the battles and try and be with his son. And his son sort of starts to realize that, oh, my dad, you know, he didn't just run off from fighting. He wanted to try and protect... Uh, something else that was really dear to him and he left you know on good terms rather rather than the son thinking that he just left because he just didn't want to fight and he just sort of you know fled for his family so it's interesting when playing the playing the game and seeing how there's that character dynamics between all of these different faces that you meet in your army and how on different playthroughs you might experience different support conversations or different um care like uh different character paths and um let's see what else was i thinking of uh for the gameplay it's pretty standard fire emblem fair it's nothing that's too crazy like how some of the newer games have been with like the partnering up system or the um like you get to train your units into whatever sort of class you want to with uh sacred stones everybody sort of has a set path but at the same time that's also a plus because you know what everybody's going to be able to focus on and that's why i think it's a good starting step for any fire emblem fan and i agree with a lot of the people that say it is too because it's a good way to see 
how characters uh, uh, can grow as a char- uh, can grow as a combat unit. Uh, you can see how characters will eventually gain different paths that they can go down. Like some of your sa- uh, mages later on can either become like a necromancer to summon um, allied uh, zombie soldiers to fight for you and basically uh, act like decoys while you deal with the real enemy forces, or you can have them become like a druid for extra strong healing, but they can still defend themselves if necessary. And really the story itself, while it's not like super deep, like I said, there is an interesting dynamic with the, with the main characters, Erica and Erafim and the main enemy of the game, uh, Prince Leon from the main invading force of the enemy empire. And there's some really good villains in this game too. Like one of the main uh, generals for the enemy army, I forget his name, unfortunately, but he is just this slimy son of a gun who has this long, nasty hair. Whenever he sees princess Erica, he just basically makes it very clear that he wants her for himself and is basically going to lock her away and use her rather than as like treat her like a wife or like someone he cares about just more so to have her as a trophy. And he, what's his name? Let me see real quick on my notes. It's, um, Oh, Walter. That's his name. He's just this, whenever you look at his portrait too, you can just like feel that sliminess coming off of him. He, he, he reminds me of like a character like Steve Buscemi might play in a movie where he's kind of a sleaze ball, or sort of like that slit, grimy sort of mobster sort of guy who's gonna double cross you if you're not careful. So I will say that I don't have a whole lot of nostalgia for Sacred Stones, I'll be honest, but I still really fondly think about the game every now and then since it did get me introduced to the series, and I you know eventually played a lot of the 3DS games and Three Houses and some of the other games. Uh, like from the Super Nintendo era with the fan translations. And if, like I said, if you've ever wanted to play a Fire Emblem game, it's honestly a really good starting point. Now, that's yeah, not that's not the first one, right, that was released on GameCube or Game Boy Advance? I know, I know the uh, first one was on NES, but... I uh, No, um, the first one that... I, I think the first Game Boy Advance game was technically Fire Emblem, uh, The Binding Blade, which was Roy's right. game, and then his dad's game, The Blazing Sword, was the one that came after it. But that was the first game that we got here in... Right. The United States, and it was just called Fire Emblem, right? Yeah, that's the funny thing. It's just called Fire Emblem. <laughs> that's what the funny part of that one is. But at yeah. least we did start seeing more of the games after that. And I mean, other than a few, I like the only ones we haven't gotten, not counting the the uh, games part of the GBA era. The only other games that we haven't gotten was a. Uh, Fire Emblem, the, the Binding Blade. We didn't get the remake of the third uh, NES game, which was, I think, I think it's called New Mystery of the Emblem, if I remember right. And what about that, we, what about sorry, that one? The Seven Seven Six. I've heard about. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the one that was released like super late into the Super Nintendo era. Like I think it came out in like 1997 or 1998. It was supposed that to is. be like the big pet project for uh, the series creator. It, didn't sell well, unfortunately, and is often regarded as one of the hardest games in the series because it has a lot of really bizarre choices. I remember trying to play through it, and I gave up at one point because it, it's so confusing about how some of the mechanics work in that game and how so difficult like trying to get some of the alternate chapter maps are. It's like nothing compared to how Fire Emblem games became with the GBA onwards, where you just had to maybe have like a certain character in your or like keep a certain character alive in your party for long enough or something. It's it was just, it's it's hard. It's very hard. <laughs> yeah, this was a uh, gateway to Fire Emblem for me as well. I played this back when I had a Game Boy Advance, and uh, really, it definitely got me into this series. Uh, turn-based strategy RPGs are my favorite genre, pretty much. And once I 
discovered this, so I was on board. The only thing that I, I've never liked about these games was how, like, once a character dies, it's permanent. So um, I'll admit that in the future games where you can turn that option off, I always turn that off because that always annoyed me. Yeah, I did the same thing. Or I would just save... Well, you can't even save scum uh, character deaths in the Game Boy Fire Emblem because the game autosaves before every attack. So if someone dies, they die, and you can't really undo it unless you start the chapter over. Yeah, that's that's definitely the hardest part about the GBA era ones and some of the other ones, too, where it's nice with the newer games that they have um, an in-game rewind feature that you can use, like, certain uh, certain amount of charges for. Like, it's Milla's Turn Wheel and uh, Divine Pulse in the newer games. It's nice how you can, like, uh, take that move back and try and prevent that unit from dying without having to reset the map entirely. But I definitely understand where you guys are coming from, where when you have to lose a unit and you either got to restart the map or just take the loss. It's just like, oh, man, that's a hard choice sometimes if you want to redo it. Because if you get far enough in a map and you've made, like, you've gotten good level ups and one character happens to die, it's like, oh, man, the boss is like the only unit left. Do I just go for the reset or do I just go for the kill? <sighs> I've had that happen. All right. Times. Speaking of going for the kill, I'm going to uh, kill the discussion. <laughs> on fire emblem and we'll move along to our next game though i say game we're gonna talk games here as i kind of preface it and then turn it over to two people much more experienced with the series than me um since i've been playing some game boy color games recently and really getting into some backlog on the vita um i'd heard one game talked about quite a bit a whole series of games that is uh the Mega Man battle network game and i just old credits on that two days ago the first one um it was an interesting game um i'll have to hear what you guys have to say about the rest of the series to see if i go into it i really 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 loved the combat um it's a gosh what real-time strategy game that pauses when you need to actually pick some certain commands but other than that you're constantly moving dodging attacks um doing whatever but the game starts you out as your your guy's name is lan right <clears throat> Yep, Lan yep. is the main character. Mm-hmm. Lan's the main character, and we were chatting about this on the Discord. All the stuff in the game are puns or very um, early 2000s internet references. Um, playing this game, you can really pinpoint what era in time it is set in. Like, the internet is brand new. Uh, what is it? Wiley's group is called the WWW. Yeah, um, World 3. Oh my gosh, the World 3. <laughs> And you've got the energy energy named ACDC Town. Apparently not after the uh, rock band, but uh, <laughs> alternating oh current. Direct current. Um, but so you're land in the real world, walking around doing stuff. I mean, it could be Pokemon. It could be Yokai Watch. You're just walking around a modern city and doing stuff. But you've got Mega Man. And Mega Man is your battle guy in the virtual world he can battle viruses he can uh, go in and unlock blocks that have been put in in certain electronic devices and to do that you jack in and man you can jack all over town in the mega man battle network it is uh i hear you can jack into a squirrel yep apparently i saw that screenshot yes you can jack into a squirrel (laughs) in the antique store (laughs) oh boy don't you jack into the oven in one of the games Oh, that was yes. very, yep. That's one of the very first things you your oven's burning down because the very suspicious-looking oven repairman or 
net your house network repairman guy. He, you can obviously tell he's a bad guy because I mean he's got a goatee right there. <laughs> it's got to be bad. Um, and yeah, your oven catches fire, and you got to jack into the oven and go defeat Fireman. Who? Because I mean, who else? What other Mega Man villain would be causing your oven to be on fire? Um, but yeah, you, you're on a. You've got your little three by three grid. The enemy starts on a three by three grid. They're connected. You can do some things sometimes to take over their some of their areas, and they take over yours. But mainly, um, you're firing your little poo 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 shot and waiting for a gauge to build up that you can play um, your bigger attacks. And they're called chips, and they are basically the Pokemon of the game or the uh, <laughs> the cards of the game. It's that's how uh, those Game Boy games and the Back in the day, you know, there's always a collection aspect, and the collection things here were these chips, and most of them were attacks that you would get from enemies. You'd beat an enemy, um, get attacks from them, and then be able to use these attacks in battle. You had a folder of 30 that you could play with in between any battles and put them in, put them out. They all had letters associated with them. Um, and if you had attacks that were the same attack, if you were using cannon and cannon, you could stack them on top of each other and have a couple special attacks to use. But if you had cannon and a bomb, but if you had high cannon A and mini bomb A, you could set them together. Um, in the first game, I don't know if they changed this in the other games, but um, when your gauge filled up, you could pick from five different chips. And if you didn't like that selection, you could um, tell your guy to, hey, I'll get some more chips. Mega Man, just keep dodging for a while. And then when the gauge filled again, you'd have an option to use 10. And if you wanted, then you could pick from 15 and you could stack attacks. I never got many great attacks. I know there were some, like if you used cannon, cannon, cannon three times in a row or something, it would like power up and you could do a huger cannon, a bigger attack for bigger battles. Um, but yeah, you, you spend a lot of time going through these pseudo 3D mazes and a lot of them had puzzle elements to them and they were random battles all the time. And I kind of rode the whole game like, oh, this is so annoying that I'm trying to solve a, solve a puzzle and failing and having to go back and redo it again all the while while stupid random battles are going on but the battle system really carried me through that i really really enjoyed the battle system and i usually do not play any kind of tactical or strategy games maybe it's because it was a tiny total six by three grid you know it was never a huge tactical thing and you were dodging the whole time um definitely had the action element to it but um yeah, rolled credits on it, went through the ending, definitely used save states because there was a long span there at the end of the first one where you couldn't save. It flat out told you, you won't be able to save from here on out. And I was like, ha ha, little do you know. <laughs> um, I actually ran into a problem with the, I guess, the core I was using on my Vita of playing it right towards the end um, when I jacked into the final area. Um, my screen went black, couldn't do anything. So I Googled like right where I was and it was a common emulator problem. I had to take my, had to go into my Vita, figure out where my save states were, or not even my save states, where the save was, put it on my computer, use Virtual Boy to get through there and then put it back on my Vita to play that night. I'm like, no, I'm bound to determine to do this tonight. But just a really cool game. And there was a lot more after that. So uh, I'll let you, uh, was it Brother Jaybird? You and Oust played a lot more of these than me. Oh, yeah. Mega, Mega Man Battle Network dominated a lot of Capcom's releases back in the early in the early aughts. This is a series that ran from about 2000 to 2006 all told, before spawning off a sequel series, uh, Mega Man Star Force. Um, Mega Man was... Mega Man's always been a very time-based kind of character in that 
he rose to prominence in an age where robots were the big sci-fi thing, were the big sci-fi thing with classic Mega Man and the 90s Mega Man was the was the darker and edgier take on that with Mega Man X. Um, Mega Man Battle Network was when they decided to do a bit of a revamp uh, to accommodate the rising trend of the internet. So, so it's very specifically locked into that particular time, and it was always, it was always, it was interesting. It was cool at the time, but now it's always a bit more of a nostalgia, a nostalgia hit to go back and play because, like, oh, I remember when we all thought things like this would happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your ovens, your smart ovens, would all catch on fire. Yeah, well, some smart ovens do catch on fire. So, <laughs> yeah, the uh, the I mean, maybe there's another combat system out there like this, and I just haven't encountered it. But it's really unique. Uh, th- that was always one of the things that stuck out to me when I played it. But uh, I think uh, when I picked it, I picked it up uh, for the first time. It was probably the second or third one that I started with. I picked it up on vacation and put it in the Game Boy, and I'm like. This is not Mega Man X. This is not what I was expecting. <laughs> and I was a little miffed by that at first, I think. But it, I quickly, like, really got into it because it was just... I mean, it's just a solid RPG, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the games... The game... Mm-hmm. Battle Network, it was in an interesting place where you could see the series evolving every year because they had every they had a new release every year for six years and then the way they the way this worked was in japan they'd create a Mega Man battle network game and release it in early december for christmas and it would be followed up in the states for a release in the summer that was when we all got it every summer after the original release um and you could see these changes being made over time um Battle Network 1 had the 5-chip layout that could grow into a 15-chip layout you mentioned, uh, Platy. Mm-hmm. But from the second game on, you could only get a maximum of 10 chips at a time. And they would re- and a lot of things were retooled. You could still do the add thing for the second and third game, um, where you could... Um, submit your current selection of ha- selection of chips it's a draw more of them this game worked very much like a card game it, you were managing a deck mm-hmm. for uh, for all your uh, combat purposes but from the fourth game on they re- they did a soft revamp of the series and they locked you down a little bit you could still technically use 10 but your normal selection was only eight and you could only get 10 under certain circumstances if you had specialty um specialty setups um, uh, done in advance. Um, the second and third games, I think, are where it fully grew into the RPG uh, t- status from its hybrid action RPG uh, status in the first game, because that was the game that allowed you to do change what they called styles, which are basically your RPG classes. Uh, in your second and third game, you could do... Um, turn uh you could gain the shield style which was defense based and healing based or you could get the guts style which was offense which was offense based or the custom style which was getting you as many battle chips as you could to lay as much damage down as you could that was your dps class they had they had a handful of others team style uh, in the second game uh, the legendary hub style or shadow style or bug style um each of them developed different 
um, allowed you to play in different ways and specializing in different strategies. Uh, fourth, four, five, and six revamp that a little bit by making them instead of general strategies, they would favor certain collections of battle chips over the other you still had a couple of options um the fourth the fourth and fifth generation didn't use styles they used souls uh where you were based not on particular strategies but on other net navvies in the series Mega Man and his friends are all what they call net navvies mm -hmm. which are what we call it when your person when your uh, profile picks come to life and shoot things um <laughs> So the souls were based on other style, were based on other net navvies rather than specific strategies. And the final one, oh, I forget what this last one is called. Uh, cross the cross system was basically a, a revamped version of the soul system, also based on other net navvies, but more closely aligned with specific styles. So you got a lot. This was a game that specialized in customizing uh, your ability to play, which was always one of my favorite things about it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, my memory of the strategy and, and optimization of all that is not very good because uh, you said I was more, uh, Platy, you said I was more knowledgeable in this game than you are, but really you've, you've played it <laughs> more recently than I have, other than just messing around with it the past week, just sort of get re-familiar with it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like uh, I remember, obviously I remember enjoying the combat system, but um, at, at least for teenage me, I don't know how well the story holds up now, but I just thought the concept of having an online uh, persona like that that you controlled, and and even more than that, being able to like enter different devices and stuff to get mm -hmm. online, I thought that concept was so cool back then. And you know, I guess it is a little dated now, looking back at it, like uh, the smart devices that go awry and all that. But I thought it was, uh, I just thought the entire concept of having a smart home that you could you know enter that way and, and you had to go in and destroy the viruses to teenage me that was just like this really cool concept that i hadn't seen at the time anybody else really explore in a game or otherwise yeah lan had a phone he was getting emails on his phone in 2001 i know yeah he had a little uh a little personal uh a pda mm -hmm. well, i think we're i think we're all being a little unfair because this game actually predicted a lot about the modern internet this game more or less predicted what we call the internet of things uh which is what we call it when we're able to send commands from our smartphones our uh, our uh, pets um to our various smart devices around the home. Um, what really stands out is the cartoonish take on these things, um, because Mega Man Battle Network is a very, very silly game filled mm -hmm. with people who do very silly things. Um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of the internet, the, the mass attacks by uh, hackers, um, lethal shutdowns, of important uh, internet-connected devices. A lot of that's played out in, in a rather ironic way. Because way back when, when this game came out, it was like, we were all talking to each other, yeah, no one will ever do this. We're not putting everything on the internet. We're not <laughs> going to have smart vases that water our flowers for us. It's not going to happen ever. And, you know, 15 years later, oh, whoops, here's a smart vase that waters your flowers for you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. yeah joking about jacking into they're, they're basically all smart devices smart tvs smart radios all, all the different things that you were plugging Mega Man into to go do stuff in the game 
Yeah, and the idea that your TV could get a virus was probably pretty ridiculous back then, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you got an Android TV now, like that's totally possible. This is why I own a non-smart TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably for, it's probably for the best because yeah. computerized TVs are just a headache nowadays. It's like, okay, the system is bricked, the remote control is not working. What do I? How long do I have to wait for it to boot up? Ten minutes? Yeah, <laughs> even that, even with our smart ahead. TV, even with our smart TV, we just got an Nvidia Shield and use that. I don't use even any of the built-in apps. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got a smart TV that. Um, was it Netflix and a couple others don't support it. So, I mean, you're using Netflix from ages ago without um, profiles. So yeah. loading it up on that TV and then trying to like pick what I was watching, I'm like, oh my God, I, it's buried between what my family members have watched in the one week between when I get a chance to. So, What are you doing with your off-brand hipster TVs, man? You got to join the wave <laughs> here. <laughs> So you guys talking about how, like, the main character's name is Lan and how it's called jacking in for a lot of that stuff. When you guys first mentioned that it was called jacking in for uh, how you get into, like, the digital uh, world mm-hmm. of the game, I thought to myself, that sounds like a very Capcom thing to name it because it <laughs> Capcom, like, I don't really play a whole lot of Capcom games, but I'm a fan of the Monster Hunter series. And in those games in particular, Capcom loves using puns and silly names and all sorts of jokes that they can get away with for the translations. And when then you guys start talking about, like, the main character's name being Lan and how Wiley's Force is called the WWW. It's like, yeah, that it's a very, it's, it sounds like a very Capcom translation. Do you, do you <laughs> Which see, can do be you a good s- thing, though, because it can be funny. Do you see the theme there? I do. <laughs> yeah, and the the uh, female character, her, um, I think it's just, I think her name is male, right? Like It is. It's M-A-Y-L, which yeah. is the only oh it's male. Like, unless, okay. you call, unless you caught the anime of the series, Mega Man NT Warrior in English. Oh, boy. Uh, when, <laughs> in order to preserve uh, the sound, the uh, syllable count with her Japanese name, I believe they called her Meilu all the time. Because the way you pronounce male in J- Japanese is meiru, so in order to match that in the English tra- in the English dub, they called her meilu all the time. I think I have one of the like the the mangas of of uh, Battle Network around here somewhere. Oh yeah, it. yeah. I've Battle, read it in ten years. Battle Network was Capcom's big thing going for a solid six years. It had an anime. It had like two or three major manga adaptations. All all three of those independent. It had a number of spinoff gag manga. It was it was the thing for a good and six what, years if you were involved with anything Capcom. Yeah, and I remember what, at that. Least the third one split into two games, like Pokemon, right? Oh, third, oh yeah. The third through the sixth were all split in two. Oh, yeah. okay. So yeah, it, <laughs> they really started milking that. They yeah, used every- they used one as like an advertisement for another game right they had like some product placement in it oh yeah yeah, yeah. well what happened was um mega man battle network got I, I say that it dominated well it got really big it it's it blossomed right around the third game because that was when the anime had suddenly launched and it was in full swing and they started doing um they started sneaking little ways for Capcom to monetize the series into the game at around that point. Uh, they'd offer cheat codes that you'd have to go find in magazines or on the, or in the TV show or in specialty Capcom products 
or they had all these little um, distributable attachments for the fourth game forward where you could go look up these cards that would have little codes that you could use in your game. Capcom cashed in on that series constantly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I played... Uh, I know I don't remember if I started with the second one or the third one, but I definitely played two and three, and then I got four, but I never finished it. Yeah, um, I, there's no surprise you didn't finish four. Four is the worst game in the series, bar none. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I remember it was. It had something to do with space. Yeah, yeah, a meteor is coming, and scientists have to stop it. And then they need to figure out something for Lan and Mega Man to do for the rest of the game while the scientists are trying to stop it. That is literally the plot. <laughs> the game, the fourth game, is an interesting piece of work because I mentioned I mentioned this just a little while ago, but that the games were released were created for a very strict Christmas deadline, early December, and they kept to it very hard. Um, which caused a lot of problems because they, let's see, they created the first game for the first December, then they produced Mega Man 2, Mega Man Battle Network 2, the December after that. And then they got the first version of Mega Man Battle Network 3, which was uh, just, I believe, Battle Network 3. And they released that in December, but that was rushed and that was a little rushed and had a lot of content and they were trying new things and it came out a little buggy. So a few months later, they released a second version, Mega Man Battle Network 3 Black, which was mostly the same, but the bugs were all fixed. It had a little bit of extra content. And then um, both games came packaged over to the States as Battle Network 3 White and Blue, uh, which was what we got. Um, and then, because this was like the crest of the Battle Network wave, uh, they decided, bless their hearts, that they were going to do a revamp of the series. They were going, this was Battle Network 4 through 6, use an entirely different library of sprites and assets. Uh, recode the game to produce two games worth of original content. Not one, like they were used to. Two games original content, an entirely new library of assets that they had to build. And it blew up in their faces. Because um, they were also... They were also um, releasing two versions at once instead of simply doing one version and then following up with a, with a fixed-up version later. So instead of having an entire year to develop two whole games, they had nine months, and it collapsed. It was a disaster. The coding would break frequently. The story was non-existent. In order to get all the content out of the game, you would beat the game in a third of the time, and then they cheated you by having you replay the entire game again to get all the other content. Because what they do is they offer you a selection of randomized scenarios. It's not a linear progression. It's not a story. It's you get adventures A, B, and C the first round. Then you get adventures D, X, and J the second round. And then you got to play another round to get all the to get to the what we would traditionally consider the post game content, and that, oh, that was a tremendous. It was a disaster. Everyone hates it. And when it came over to the states, it was even worse because the translation sucked. Oh, it was filled with typos. I mean, blatant in your face typos. What a polite young man she was. Uh, <laughs> Oh, God. Repeat. Sounds like Breath of Fire 2's quality translation. That's another Capcom game with a real infamous translation to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, repeat uh, repeat mistakes regarding uh, plural and singular, singular tenses uh, over the same word, which makes it look an awful lot like somebody went and cut and pasted 
for the script. It was a disaster. They got their they got their uh, act together for the fifth and sixth games, uh, which also followed the same December schedule. Uh, but at that point, they'd realized, okay, we really gotta not break this again. <laughs> so if I uh, keep continuing, I should skip four. Uh, yeah, but set, play play two and three at the very least. You've played the first one. Two and three will definitely reward you with uh, um with better uh, story, uh, tighter tighter mechanics. Um, the, it's it'll be a good uh, worth your while to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would skip four and f- four uh, and go straight to five and six. But four, five, and six, the second trilogy is really its own beast. Um, so don't don't so play them, but don't expect continuity a, a strong sense of continuity with one, two, and three. Don't forget to play network transmission too. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that's a that's a that's a good one. I love um, network trans network transmission was the spinoff um, for the GameCube, which took mechanics from the first three games and redesigned them to be a pastiche of the classic Mega Man games. So it would be it was basically uh, classic Mega Man for the modern age using Battle Network characters. All right, I think we've gone deep enough into this series. Let's get uh, back and uh, into other ones that... Oh, actually, this one uh, has a recent release as well. This series, the Mana series. Brurian, we're back to you. We're going to talk sort of Mana now. Yeah, we haven't... We haven't talked about a Square Enix RPG in uh, a little while now, so I guess yeah. we can kind of pivot back to that. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, sort of Mana. It was... Uh, Released in 2003 under the Square Enix uh, name, I I also think it was one of the first few games released under the Square Enix title right after the merger, since it was done in late 2003, and I think Square Enix started in early 2003, if I'm right. Um, But it was a, uh, it's a action role-playing game. That was published by Square Enix Nintendo for the Game Boy Advance. It's a uh, enhanced remake of the first game in the Mana series. Some people might know as Final Fantasy Adventure mm-hmm. here in the States way, way back when. Um, I think it was called something like Mystic Quest in Europe as well. Uh, it was also the fifth title that was released totally across the Mana series at this point so fifth title but first remake i believe but it basically the game follows a uh a unnamed hero or heroine because you could you know choose a male or a female character as they as you seek to defeat the dark lord and defend the mana tree um while incorporating gameplay elements from the original game and generally following the same plot uh sort of mana had had new gameplay mechanics and a much more involved story uh obviously you know it drops the final fantasy moniker because uh they i guess they wanted to distance you know the whole renaming of mana games as final fantasy games here um though i can't remember if there were any mana games before this one other than secret of mana for the super nintendo um the plot is uh more or less modified to allow the hero or heroine character to follow the parallel stories and the backstory dialogue is also ex- way more expanded from the original version. Um, it wasn't very well received 
but it, it was I guess you could say it was more it was positive but it wasn't that great um, a lot of reviewers at the time praised the graphics of the game because if you look at it compared to Final Fantasy Adventure uh, this looks infinitely better you know better hardware better better sound better everything about it um, but uh, the gameplay itself is an expanded and modified version of uh, you know the old Final Fantasy Adventure with elements added from later mana game series uh, Sword of Mana displays a kind of a top-down perspective, kind of gives you not quite an isometric, but, you know, uh, and the characters can navigate the terrain, fight a plethora of hostile creatures. Um, but unlike the original game, this is the big, this was the big distinction for me when I was playing it is I believe the first game when it was Final Fantasy Adventure was more grid-based. So, you know, it was on squares and stuff like that, kind of like the original Legend of Zelda game. But this one gives you free control over your terrain. Um, the game itself has a similar story to Final Fantasy Adventure, but they added additional details and dialogue. It uh, begins with the flashback of the death of your parents, depending on, you know, the character you chose, at the hands of the Dark Lord, the ruler of the nation. And upon waking, you're a gladiator slave in Grons, attempting to escape before being controlled by the Dark Lord and thrown off of a bridge. But after you've been fished out of a lake, you're advised, you know, to head to the very first city. Um, kind of don't want to give a whole rundown of the uh, the plot because you should play it. It's a lot of fun. Um, any of you guys ever played this one before? Mm. Play Final Fantasy Adventure. I mean, there was even a re remake of this. For the Vita and uh, iOS and mobile, that was uh, Adventures of Mana. It's basically the same game. It's not based off of this remake, but it's just kind of a remake of Final Fantasy Adventure again. Yeah, I played. But I, played it was, I played the original. Is the is this the original? Is that the one that's in the collection of Mana too? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've got. I got. I haven't played that yet, but I bought that, so I have that as well. But maybe yeah. I'm I'm in the same boat as Pendy, where I have the collection of Mana, but I have not played. Um, Final Fantasy Adventure slash sort of Adventure Amana, whatever the, its official name is nowadays. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, we just got it here, sort of Mana, but in Japan it was called um, you know the whole series is uh, Seiken Densetsu, and it had the nice little uh, subtitle of uh, the Legend of the Sacred Sword. Hmm. I played Heroes of Mana on DS, which I hear is a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> There's one I remember being advertised in Nintendo Power, but I for the life of me can't remember which one it was. I just remember maybe this was a Nintendo game too, but there was one where it had like this brown colored robot who was like really round looking. I don't know if it was part of the Mana series or not, but that's the only thing I can think of that maybe is like my was my first introduction to Mana, if it's the right series I'm thinking of or something else entirely. <laughs> What system was it on? I think it was either GBA or DS, I think. I'd have uh, to look through my Nintendo Power it, magazines and oh, see. Oh, but... I got you. It might be like Children of Mana or Donna, Dawn of Mana. Cause, it could uh, be Children. Those... That sounds familiar. Because those two were the well, ones that followed Sword of Mana. Okay. It might be that then. Because that name kind of rings a bell. So... And if it's the one I'm thinking of, like the two kids that are like on the cover, like... One of them's got brown hair, one's got blonde hair, and they got sort of uh, interesting designed hats, if I remember right. Oh, okay. So the the, the fun thing about uh, Sword of Mana is, uh, you know, from, you know, we'll, we'll harken back to Final Fantasy Adventure. 
Um, in that one, you explore the world and you fight monsters that, you know, stand in your way on the map. You can equip yourself with different weapons that each have their own advantage. Not all enemies can be defeated by the same weapon, so you have to constantly change your weapon type to defeat your enemies. Because some may be susceptible to sword attacks, but then others, you know, they have resistance to that, so you have to switch to uh, an axe or a spear or something like that. Some some enemies can't be defeated by weapons at all, in which case you have to use magic. And then every time you gain a level, you get to choose if you want to gain more stamina, power, wisdom, or will. Stamina makes you last longer in battle. Power makes you more your attacks more effective. Wisdom makes your spell stronger, and your will increases your speed. The speed of your max uh, attack meter, because just like in Secret of Mana, you got to wait for your uh, meter to charge all the way up to do more damage per swing. Um, each weapon has its own special attack, which can be executed by uh, the increments of your meter. Meter starts out, you know, real small in the game, but as you level up, you can get it really, really big and do like you know massive damage on a lot of attacks. But uh, once it gets to the remake, sort of Mana. Um, there were a ton of improvements done to it. Uh, there were a lot of new weapons, like staves and bows were added to the game. They added a lot of things from uh, 2nd Densetsu 3's battle system, such as its class system and its magic system. And uh, your character will class... You can also do class changes with your character. And you can also gain new magic once you attain an elemental spirit, which was not in Final Fantasy Adventure. So it's a pretty expanded... Uh, comparatively to its old uh, version. I like to think of it in the same terms of what they did for uh, Dragon Warrior 3 for the NES to the Game Boy Color version of they rebalanced everything, they added a whole bunch of new stuff, new weapons and everything. All right. Well, we're going to end the podcast with a pair of games that uh, we've already talked about, at least one that didn't come out in the United States with the Pokemon. But uh both uh, Pendy and Yangus have a pair of games that uh, they want to talk about um, that were not released here in the United States. We'll start with Pendy. Um, you're talking about Super Super Robot Tyson, right, for the Game Boy Advance? Yes. yes. So, uh, and these actually, um, I am talking about games that were uh, released in the United States, which... Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, there's a lot of them that weren't, but uh, these were uh, ones that were. So, I'm going to be talking about uh, Super Robot Tyson, Original Generation 1 and 2, which were for the Game Boy Advance. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, the uh, more recent titles are translated as uh, Super Robot Wars, as opposed to, to Tizen. Um, so we kind of got a one-two punch with these two games. Um, they In Japan, they came out in November. Uh, the first game came out in November of 2002, and the second game came out in February of 2005. But when they tried to give the... Uh, uh, the other part of the world a chance on this uh, on this series of games um, in the North America, they released one in August of 2006, and then a few months later they released a sequel in November of 2006. So you get a nice little one-two punch of both games almost all at once. And then in Europe they got them both in uh, 2007 sometime. Uh, so these, and also um, they did a remake of these games for the PlayStation 2 in 2007, but they were just Japan only. It didn't come over here. Um, so this was uh, for the first and unfortunately last attempt at bringing Super Robot Wars, referred to as SRW, games to the West. Uh, the only exception being a SRW spinoff that was more of a traditional RPG that was uh, released for the DS. 
which for some reason had Cosmos from Xenosaga in it for some reason. Was that, just was that the figure. was that Frontier Saga? Yeah. I th- um. Well, was was it Frontier Saga? I can't remember because there's two of them. One that got released here and one that a sequel that didn't. I remember so, playing one on the DS for Super Robot Tyson. Yeah, it might have been Frontier Saga, that, and that was like a, more of a traditional RPG where and you had like these juggling uh, techniques when you when you fought someone where you like hit them and then they jump up in the air and then you hit them more and try and juggle them. Yeah. They stayed up. Yeah. Um, but uh, SRW games are typically their turn-based strategy games. Uh, you'll get so many units from opposing forces on a grid-based map, and you'll go at it. If you've played Final Fantasy Tactics or Fire Emblem, which we referenced earlier, you know the style. Uh, eliminating, eliminating enemies will gather you pilot points and money you can use to upgrade and buy pilot, um, <clears throat> pilot stats and skills. And you can upgrade mech or super robot, uh, as, as another way to say it, stats and special attacks along with being able to buy equipable items that can provide an upgrade or like healing or something like that. On the battlefield, pilots will have uh, what's called spirit, where they can use certain skills, and the mechs that they pilot will have attacks that will use a limited pool of energy or ammo, depending on the attack. Uh, good and good guy and bad guy enemy units will have an option to counterattack, defend, or evade when they get attacked. Each mission that you have, you play with a set goal, along with a mastery goal that gives you bonus money if you achieve it. The more missions you achieve mastery in, the more access you have to various secret weapons and bonus missions, along with access to the true ending in both of these games, um, and a lot of the other games that they have as well. The catch is that this game will stay in the highest difficulty mode as you continue to get these mastery objectives. So the better you are at the game, the more difficult it becomes. It's been a long time since I've played these two in particular, but I remember in hard mode, I struggled with them. Like they weren't some of the most difficult games I've ever played. Uh, some of the, the subsequent sequels I've played, not as bad, but these were, were very difficult for me back in the day. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed the challenge. Uh, like in most SRW games I've encountered, you choose between two different protagonists with their own personal storyline that fits in with the main plots. Um, it's also worth noting that the storyline that starts in one also continues on in two, and that the characters were popular enough in Japan that they spawned their own anime series that was based off the, uh, the first game, the story of the first game. Uh, SRW games typically use giant robots, otherwise known as mecha, from various anime and manga properties. I mean, this is basically what sets these games apart from other strategy RPGs. You can have a game where characters from various Gundam series, Voltron, Full Metal Panic, and Neon Genesis Evangelion all come together to fight various villain villains and uh, <clears throat> from the same properties mixed in with some original protagonists and antagonists thrown in as well. Uh, this series actually started way back in the Game Boy, original Game Boy, 1991. That's when the first game of this series came out, which, of course, we didn't see either. But because, as you can imagine, the complicated license issues that are involved with all these various IPs, none of them have made it over here in the West. So, thankfully, they took a shot with original generation because OG is an entirely made up of original mecha designed by Ban Presto, who produces the games. So it's all original robots. None of them are from like different anime series or whatever. Um, unfortunately, like I said before, these um, were the only traditional SR- SRW, <clears throat> SRW games to go west. But there is a recent re- loophole for recent releases. So these days you can play all the latest releases in English, all the games that have come out for the PS4 and now subsequently Switch and even a couple on Steam were all released in the Southeast Asia region. So this region has English-speaking nations, so you can import them and play them with English menus and subtitles. So I'm currently playing one uh, Super Robot Wars T, which they actually threw in uh, 
characters from Cowboy Bebop, that anime. So I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, the PS4 cool. systems don't have region locking, so you don't need a Japanese system to play them. And you can get them digitally, or if you want to get them digitally or get any kind of DLC, you just need to get a Southeast Asian account, like the way I did it. I just got like a Singapore account, which is in English. So I just have a Singapore account to get any kind of DLC that I need. And then that DLC will automatically cross over to your, your USA account. So I love mechs. I love based strategy RPGs. I love anime. So these games are enormously fun for me to play. I had no idea that they were in English now because of that. Oh, and I love Super Robot War games. I've played several of them on the DS and, J- and Japanese using... Uh, websites where people had translated the menus. I'm going to have to get myself one on the PS4 now. Yeah, there's a bunch. There's like three or four titles on the PS4. Oh, man. You just opened up a whole new world of hurt for me. <laughs> a whole new world. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Like Some of these games, like they'll throw in like, like random uh, mecha from different anime, which I've never heard of before. And I'll just be like, oh, I've never heard of this before. They'll do a little bit of the plot line in it. And then I'll be like, oh, I'm going to check out this anime. And then I'll go find the anime and watch it and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Because I usually, of, yeah, go, yeah ahead. go ahead. I was oh. just going to say one of one of my favorite moments from Super Robot Wars is uh, I played the one where they had the virtual on robots in it. And in one of the story scenes, uh, I, I read like a translated dump log of it. And um, one of the pilots from one of the other mechs w- were just like, uh, Hey, uh, who are you guys piloting it? You know, we haven't seen you yet. And they, the virtual on mechs just respond, uh, we're being remotely controlled from another dimension. And the guy's like, uh, oh, okay. Because <laughs> the whole point of the virtual on mechs is that you are controlling these mechs in another dimension as you play the game to fight each other. Nice. Yeah, they'll usually do some kind of crazy plot where they'll take like all the different plot lines from all the different mechs that you're involved with and kind of smoosh them together somehow. And it's interesting the way that the way to see how they do that. So does that mean there's a third impact like from Neon Genesis Evangelion? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that kind of stuff. <laughs> let's let's go to play Asia right now. <laughs> now I can think of is that darn tumbling down song from the movie. From that Neon Genesis movie. Tumbling down, tumbling. I can never get that out of my head. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's nice um, if you get, like, so I've got, like, a Southeastern Asia uh, Singapore account. So, like, if I want to buy anything digitally, like, you can't use, like, a USA credit card or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like a USA PlayStation Network card or, or whatever. But if you go to Play Asia, because you mentioned it, uh, Play Asia sells Singapore um, PlayStation 4 cards. So you, if you want to get, like, a $50 card on your Singapore account, you just buy it through Play Asia and... You put in the code, and now you got fifty dollars worth of money in Singapore that you can use on whatever. Oh yeah, I'm looking at Super Robot War T right now. It's got Gal Gygar. I'm already sold. Oh yeah, yeah. He's they he uh, prominently features in that game too. Oh, beautiful. Alrighty, from one series that I totally screwed up uh, talking about. It's the newer ones, like you said, that are not over here, but these were good. Uh, Yangus, take us home with the last game you wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. I uh, wanted to talk about Mother 3, which is definitely one of um, the more infamous Nintendo RPGs and one of the more infamous RPGs from the GBA. 
not because it's bad, but just because it's definitely one of those games with a big cult following that's never seen an official release uh, outside of Japan. So um, back with uh, the Mother series uh, was made by uh, Shigazato Itoi, who he's not super well known like outside Japan, but in Japan he's got a lot of influence from like writing. He's been in different movies as a voice actor. Like uh, if you ever seen My Neighbor Totoro, he's actually the voice of the dad of the main family in that movie. And uh, he eventually went on to create the, this RPG series called Mother or as it's called over here in the States as Earthbound. And it's a series that really harkens back to like 1950s, 1960s sort of era uh, American culture. And its gameplay was really inspired by uh, the Dragon Quest games because like if you play Mother 1 or Earthbound 0 slash Earthbound Beginnings or if you play Earthbound uh, for the Super Nintendo you're going to notice that there's a lot of similarities between uh, um, Earthbound and Dragon Quest with how things control sort of like the quest you go on but Earthbound does have its own sort of style where it's a lot more humorous and a lot more um, you know it's a lot more modern take on stuff rather than being a medieval sort of adventure and there's a lot of silly creatures but there's also a lot of sort of dark material that's tar- tackled too like uh, Guy Guess for example for the final boss of uh, Earthbound is probably one of the more well known like sort of left out of left field uh, final boss from a game but with Mother 3 it has sort of an interesting backstory to it because uh, after they finished up Earthbound on the Super Nintendo, they originally planned to release Mother 3 as a Nintendo 64 game. Well, that got pushed back a bit to be a Nintendo 64 DD game, or a disk drive game, which was only a thing in Japan. Uh, the disk drive never really caught on over there, and the project for Mother 3 was pretty much uh, put on the back burner for a long time, until finally they brought it back and then started to develop it for uh, the Game Boy Advance. I think it was one of the last released games for the Game Boy Advance, too, because it actually came out in 2006 over there, and by that point, the DS was out. And even if you look on the back of the box, it actually uh, makes it clear that you can play the game on a DS, no problem. Back when the DS systems actually had the Game Boy Advance slot on the bottom of them that you could use before they got rid of that. Uh, anyway, so Mother 3 was, is well, as of now, is the last game to officially be released for the Mother series. And it's definitely one of Etoy's, like in Japan, it's a much more divisive game, but when you speak to Western fans and a lot of people who've either played it from the original Japanese release or played the very well done uh, fan translation that was released by a translation group led by a man named, who's nicknamed Tomato. It's often considered to be one of the better RPG storylines, especially from that era. Uh, So Mother 3, like all of the Mother games take place within the same universe and the same world, but Mother 3 takes place like many, many centuries after the events of Mother 1 and Earthbound ever took place. Like Mother 3 takes place on an, an in a land that's called the Nowhere Islands, where it's just a small group of different islands with one big central one and some smaller ones scattered here and there. And to me, I always assumed that it was sort of to take place like where Australia would be located at in the world because it's in this, it's just in the middle of the ocean. There's no real other land masses around it, no other known countries or anything, but it's just hundreds and hundreds of years after Earthbound ever took place. And with Mother 3, it really focuses more on a story of that the first two games are more just. You have to go on this adventure, you find the eight melodies, you explore the world and see how things have been affected by these alien invasion that have been going on by either Gygas or his more so his influence. But with Mother 3, you actually have a, a chapter structure where you see the game go on from the different perspectives of different characters throughout the game. And there's a real story of nature 
versus science that's going on. Because like one of the first things you see when you boot up the game is the logo itself as it slowly fades in from the blackness. And unlike the other games where it's just more of a standard font and there's the globe that you normally see for the O of the Mother games, or in Earthbound's case where it's like the flashy golden letters as they pop up on the screen. Mother 3 starts off with a much more somber uh, title screen and song where it slowly fades in to this logo that's made of both metal and wood, sort of showing like there's an eeriness to it, which even toy said that that's what he was going for. And you have a more quiet, somber song compared to the openings of the other two, which are much more inviting and welcoming and more of a comforting song for you as you begin your adventure. Uh, but with Mother 3, like I said, the, the story takes place across the Nowhere Islands over a set of about 10 years or so. Like the beginning of the game, you play as a man named Flint from the small village of uh, Tasmili Village, which is one of the few settlements on the Nowhere Islands. And everybody there lives a pretty pretty carefree. Um, they don't really worry about life so much. They'll do any trading if they need to. They'll help each other out, no problem. It's not an idealistic society or anything like that, but just more of a, almost like a little house on the prairie or like a prairie life sort of uh, take on, like how early settlers in America almost were where there's, not so much money, but it's more so about trade. And you have these people that are all working together. But as the game progresses through chapter one, you start to see these enemies and these men wearing strange masks that are part of an army called the Pig Mask Army, who are starting to introduce this technology. They're beginning to release these strange beasts that are like, they're called chimeras. that are these hybrids of either different animals or they're animals with uh, robotics connected to them. So it's something's definitely going on behind the scenes and the life of the village changes pretty drastically as the game goes on. Um, the game mainly focuses though, like, so at the beginning you play as Flint chapter two, you focus on a thief named Duster chapter three, you play as this little monkey named Salsa who's trying to find his girlfriend. And from chapter four onwards, you play as the main character of the game, Lucas. Uh, you can tell he's the main character too, because Itoi always likes making his main characters wear a two striped colored shirt. In this case, Lucas is yellow and red. And Lucas is a lot different compared to like past protagonists like Ninten and Ness from the first two games, where even though they were silent protagonists, you could tell that they were a little more adventurous and were very kind and curious and wanted to go out and see more of the world. But with Lucas, he's really the complete opposite. He's more of an introvert. He doesn't really want to go anywhere. And with some of the events that happen in the game, you can completely understand why he's like that. I won't go too much into spoilers, even though it is a 14 year old game at this point but there are a lot of events in mother that or mother three that can really catch you off guard and i will be totally honest this is one of the few games that has genuinely gotten me to cry from what happens within the game itself my first experience playing it was back with um the uh, Jap uh, the japanese release i had actually this is the first in game that i ever imported a copy of uh, a copy of uh, thanks to a friend of mine who had an ebay account and i played it through on my game boy advance since gbas were all region free and i played through it and there was stuff that i didn't quite get from you know from playing it in japanese but there was stuff that i could still sort of get with context clues and like visually what was going on on screen but when i played the fan translation a few years later when that came out there like I said, there are moments that can really hit you really hard. Like one of the last moments of the game is when you fight the final boss, the actual final boss. And there's a reveal with that character that when I played it in Japanese, I was like, oh, wow, I you know didn't really see that coming. But then playing it through with the English translation, it, it honestly got to me really hard. It, it's one of the few times, like I said, that I genuinely was crying from what was happening in a game. And it reminded me a lot of what uh, the old commercials for Mother 1 had in Japan where 
the tagline for it was no crying until the end. And <laughs> he definitely went, uh, uh, a toy definitely went with that again for mother three, because when you get to the ending, it definitely gets you, you sad and kind of teared up about what's going to happen. But the game isn't all just, you know, sadness or tearing up or anything like that, because the, uh, the story and the characters are still very much that mother slash earthbound quality to them, where there's a lot of silly dialogue. They have some funny designs, but you feel like there's a real, like, genuine human characteristics to or human qualities to these characters that you meet and that you interact with including some of the animal characters like uh, salsa who i was talking about like he actually comes back in chapter seven of the game when lucas is trying to reunite with some of his friends from earlier on and sort of figure out what happened after uh, certain events separated out everybody. And Salsa actually remembers from way back in the beginning of the game in chapter three, when Lucas and his family and his uh, pet dog, Boney were trying to help uh, free Salsa and his girlfriend. So it's because of that then that Salsa ends up saving Lucas and uh, his pet dog, Boney from being attacked by this powerful chimera in uh, the chimera labs in chapter seven. Then you have like the other main characters who are Kumatora, who's this princess raised by these strange people that live on the islands called the Mad Gypsies. And then you have Duster, who I mentioned before, who's this thief that, even though he's called a thief, he's not really like, you know, like a like mustache twirling villain, like he's going to sneak into your house and steal your stuff sort of thief. It's just more of a title that he has, kind of like how in Dragon Quest games or Final Fantasy games where they're just called a thief, but they don't really actually do any actual thieving, thieving. And uh, Duster is one of the uh, uh, toys more unique characters because he's a main character, but he actually has like a physical handicap because whenever you walk around or run with Duster, he always has a very noticeable limp to him, and he always has to use these tools in combat rather than like using a weapon of sorts to help him fight. Because the idea for this character and sort of why Mother 3 has a much more varied cast and more of a strange cast to it compared to the other games was that Itoi and that the world itself is trying to present that there's a lot more to it than just you know more average people you know he's trying to be more inclusive to all of these different sort of cultures and these different people of different backgrounds and people who might have handicaps or people who might not quite understand their identity people who perhaps think they need to go for one thing but they might actually be going for another path like not necessarily just for like a confusion identity but more so confused like what do they want to do for a job in their life or you know, is it good to implement all of this technology into our lives or should we try and go for more of a focus on the nature that we were all used to? What, what's going to be the balance? How do we fix all this? And with the ending of the game, you're not even sure how things do end up turning out fully other than some little discussions that you can possibly see if you uh, explore around on the end screen where you actually physically control the end and move it around and talk to characters <laughs> off, off screen. Uh, but Mother 3... Uh, for combat and how, like, the gameplay evolved, like, for one thing, it really changed how the narrative was uh, introduced. Instead of just playing as uh, the main character, like Nintendo or Ness in the past two games, you switch perspectives. But with how combat and everything works, it retains a lot of what the other games did before it, but it also has some really cool new features to it. Like, one of my absolute favorite things about Mother 3 is how the combat is handled. So Mother games tend to have a lot of music to them because Itoi and, like, the people who make them are really big fans of different bands and stuff. And, like, in Earthbound, for example, you have a ton of Beatles references. There's tons of them scattered throughout the game. And there's a lot of other band references, too, in the other games, and uh, Mother 3 as well. But what's cool about Mother 3 is the combat, because with all the different background songs that play, you can actually push the A button in time with the drum beats to different songs, and you can create combos with reg your regular attacks. So, like, uh, one of the characters who can combo the easiest is Boney, the dog when he joins your party because with him you can like if the song was played by like a 
on just a standard four by four uh, beat, like just one, two, three, four, you could push the button to that beat and get a 16 hit combo in total from an, one attack. If you can get the button presses just right, all you gotta do is hit the A button with the time of the beat. And it's a really cool way to sort of expand just the standard um, attacks. You can, you can just use regular attacks if you want to. You don't have to use the combo system because it's not forced on you too. But it's a cool way to sort of get you more involved with the game and sort of like figure out and get like kind of into the music as you play it. Because every character too has their own unique sound that they make from their instruments. Like Duster, when he does an attack, his is this deep bass sound. When you play as Kumatora and have her attack, hers is this uh, higher pitched, um, like sort of more metal sounding guitar or like pop guitar sort of sound. Boney is him barking, you know, because he's a dog. Uh, when you play as Flint at the beginning, his is the saxophone sound. Like every playable character has their own unique uh, sound effect when they do one of these attacks. And every character has their own moveset and pools. Like Duster, like I said before, he can use different thief tools. Like one can pin the enemy down to immobilize him for a few turns. He can use uh, like things like the rope snake to startle enemies and make them uh, jump around or turn around so you can uh, get a strong attack on their backsides you have uh you have uh, kumatora and uh, lucas who can both learn a psi like uh, some of the past characters could from other games and it's definitely like just speaking about lucas with the how he learns how he gets psi that's definitely one of the reasons why i think the game didn't come out even though it like the game does a good job sort of showing these like sort of strangeness of the mother series. It also has a lot of stuff to it that I could see from Nintendo's perspective, why they probably have not done an official translation for it because they would have to change a lot. So the mad gypsies that you end up meeting are these characters that basically look like men that are cross-dressing as women or women who are cross-dressing as men. They're very bizarre looking characters with how they're designed. And it's sort of meant to, I don't know if it's meant to be a take on anything in particular or what, but they're, they're just a little bit odd looking and that you basically have to learn magic through uh, from them from a particular scene that kind of seems to imply one thing, but it, it could totally be nothing. <laughs> but um, the Mad Gypsies are one of the things that I think why that game hasn't come over, because I feel like if they had to, Nintendo would probably really either just totally get rid of those designs or they would have to try and make them look like one or the other, you know, not really have them have the sort of mixed look that they have. But it is sort of a shame. It is actually, no, it is a real shame that we didn't get that game because Mother 3 is genuinely one of the best uh, GBA games that I've played RPG or otherwise because like from being both a fan of the Earthbound slash Mother games it's a really good finale to that trilogy of games but it also really stands out as its own experience because when I first had played it I really wasn't I think the first time I played the fan translation no I played the fan translation after I played Earthbound but it was still at the point where I wasn't like huge into the Mother series like I became over the years but it, there was a lot of things to the game that I really appreciated both back then and can look back and be like oh okay I can kind of understand more so of what Itoy and them were going for now and it's really an interesting experience from start to finish because it does have a really touching story at times. It still retains a lot of the silliness that the other games have, a lot of that funny dialogue. And thanks to the fan translation, we can experience a lot of that stuff. Whether fans, you know, want to get a reproduction cart or they play it on their computers, you know, however they got to play it. And there's a lot of things about Mother 3 that I definitely could go on and on about, but I think I've been rambling long enough about it. So I'll, I'll stop for a sec. <laughs> you know, I got to say, this is one series that I have not tried yet. Uh, sadly and it's on the top of my to-do list in terms of things i need to try because I've, I've heard people say so many good things about this series and i just i've never gotten around to try one yet yeah the mother games are all very good rpgs i will admit that the first one um earthbound zero slash earthbound beginnings is it is 
you know, very much an NES RPG. It's a little slower and it's definitely not very well balanced at all. Like when, like way back when you guys had Dwayne on here, Matt, and you guys did the Dragon Quest two episode and he was talking Uh about how the end of the game is not very well balanced. Mother one slash earthbound zero is very much like that because when you get to the final uh, area of the game, Mount Etoy, that was pretty much the point where the devs were like, okay, we got to hurry up and finish the game. So we're really not going to play test (laughs) this part of it because like everything that I have ever seen people recommend for that game, it's always when you get to that last part, if you don't have the giant robot Eva with you, you better just be running away from everything because battles are not worth it. Because for one, they're really hard, but they also don't give you enough experience to warrant even trying to fight anything. And that's pretty bad when the recommendation is just to run when you get to the final hours of the game. <laughs> nice. But luck- but luckily Mother um, 3 doesn't really have that problem. I- that's one of the more fairly balanced games from the series, I would say. Like, Mother 1 is a lot more difficult. Mother 2 is pretty easy for the most part, other than a few hard spots like the Foreside Mall and uh, one of the later areas like uh, Stone the Stonehenge base. But Mother, or I'm sorry, I mean Magic Ant when Ness is by himself. But Mother 3 doesn't have that. And Mother 3 really has the in- an interesting take on the final boss, uh, how different it is compared to some of the other ones too. Because Mother games usually don't have like a normal, traditional, you fight them final boss. They have sort of a different experience for each one that you have to go through in order to, to properly beat them. But Mother 3 does give you an actual, like a proper fight fight before that one with one of the major antagonists that popped up in Earthbound, which if if you've played Earthbound, you probably are going to be able to know who the bad guy, or who, or rather, who one of the bad guys is from Mother 3. But for spoiler's sake, I won't say it, but <laughs> it's it's very satisfying if you've played Earthbound and you know who this character is, and then you go into play Mother 3 and you get to fight this character. It's honestly was one of the most satisfying moments I've had from an RPG final battle, just to kick that little son of a guns. But after all those years... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of kicking butts, I think uh, we have uh, kicked my butt tonight. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to wrap that up. Thank you, uh, Yangus, for that. Uh, it's the second time I've been on a podcast listening about that game and hearing how good it is and wishing I would have started that instead of the uh, was it the second game in the series, which I, I mean, I enjoyed, but I got about 15 hours in and I was like, okay, I see what this game is. It's pretty standard SNES RPG battle system. I'm going to go play something else. Um, But sounds like the third one, well, a little bit different, might have been kept my interest a little bit more. Yeah, Mother 3, I feel like if that was where the series really started to have more and more of its own identity with the battles and everything. I mean, it still has a lot of the same comedic stuff and everything. And like, I don't think that Earthbound and Mother 1 are bad by any means. Like, they just feel like straight up copycats of like the Dragon Quest combat style. But I definitely get where you're coming from, where they're, they feel a little bit more limited and a little Mm -hmm. bit more dated, perhaps. But yeah, Mother 3, if you guys haven't played or anybody who's listening, thing hasn't played it before definitely give the uh, fan translation a shot whether you've played the other games before or not i will say you will get a little bit more enjoyment out of it especially towards the end of the game if you've played earthbound but at the same time you don't need to play it to understand what's going on and to you know to follow everything that's happening it's mother three is entirely its own experience all right well with that we're gonna say that's it for this episode of slime time side quest um we do want to thank uh everybody our guests that were here tonight for joining us to talk about some of their favorite older game boy advance and game boy color games yeah we certainly had a lot of fun talking about everything and thanks a lot for joining us tonight guys it was definitely got to hear about some games that i definitely want to try and check out i'm sure yeah it's it a good time Go ahead. No, that's a, that was it for me. Uh, well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. All right, you 
all you listeners might have noticed that the only time we ever mention uh, Patreon on our podcast is when we say we don't use Patreon. We're just a bunch of longtime fans of the Dragon Quest series and many other RPGs that want to speak about the topics we know and love so much. But if you happen to have some money lying around that you'd like to donate, consider sliding on over to the Dragon's Den at www.wudas.com slash den. Click on the button that says support the site. Woodis has owned and maintained the Dragon's Den Dragon Quest fan site for over 20 years and would appreciate any donation. Um, if you don't want to give directly, you can use his Amazon affiliate links to make uh, many purchases, especially if you're ordering like DQ11S or DQ7 3DS and um, any of the more recent games. He's got links to their specific Amazon purchasing areas, their Amazon page. <laughs> Sorry. And a small fraction of that sale will go to support the den. Uh, if you have any suggestions for a future side quest episode, we'd be happy to hear about them from you. Uh, you can reach out to PlatyM3 on Twitter or Discord or on the Dragon's Den through personal messages. Uh, you can also contact me at Yangus the Legendary Bandit on the Dragon's Den via a personal message. Uh, just search for my name and you should find me. Uh, we have a list full of different ideas that we'd love to talk about in the future. And we'd be happy to hear from anyone who wants to add some more suggestions to the pile. Yeah, we'll uh, have another thread there when this drops in a couple days. Um, you could always comment on the most current episode or the old episodes. I read all of them. So pretty much anywhere in the den, we'll find you. So with that, I'm going to say bye, everyone. Side quest complete. Side quest complete.